Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 213, a two-and-a-half-hour episode bursting to the brim with comic book talk, as Graham McMillan and I discuss Captain America, Steve Rogers number 1 in the first four issues of Karnak, all of which are recently available on Marvel Unlimited, scheduling snags in the coming wild storm, the first issue of Betty Boop by Roger Langridge and Giselle Lagasse, Batgirl, Wonder Woman, New Talent Showcase, Licensed Comics, Garth Ennis Comics, Greg Pak Comics, and oh so much more. Show notes are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. Leave us comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com. And we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy. And thank you for listening. Jeff Lester! Graham McMillan, hello! See, that was so much better than Wasn't week. it? Yeah, I think you're right. I think we, we were like, what are we saying? Hello? What? Yeah, how, how would we do this again? <laughs> but no, we've got it right this week. It's yes. on, like, Mega slash Galvatron. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> I got mailed the, I think I told you, I got mailed the Transformers the Movie 30th Anniversary DVD. I don't think you did tell me this, damn you. Uh, and I saw this in the theater, and I remember loving this film in the theater. Because I was... Sure. 11, I guess? Um, and... And so I was like, I'm, I'm totally going to watch the special features. Because I, like, I genuinely have a, a lot of nostalgia for this film. And that nostalgia was destroyed within, like, maybe 30 seconds of the, the, the special features. Because... Never have so many people treated such a film with such unearned like reverence. Really? Yes. It's literally full of people being like, "This film changed cinema." And you're like, it's a fucking Transformers film. No, it you know, they could be talking about Citizen Kane, which also had Orson Welles in it. So <laughs> it's very similar. But no, I mean, it's there. It's full of people taking themselves very seriously and talking about how the direction was great and how the, it was groundbreaking as an animated film, uh, and and just like all of the stuff which just wasn't true. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like stuff that is only true if you have honestly, if you made Transformers the movie and. You've that's been like the highlight of your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and so, really, you, you sit through. I mean, I I sat through maybe ten minutes of the whole because there's a lot of features. There's there. I want to say there's at least an hour of features. Um, and I was just like, nope, no. And you got you know you got the people saying you know I wrote the music and I think you'll find that the music is some of the best music that was in any film of the eighties. And you're like, really? And they're like, if you look at how we like, there's an entire. Uh, how we cleaned up the print for for Blu-ray, mm-hmm. which oh, this is how they did it, Jeff. They scanned in the film, they fixed it in Photoshop. <laughs> I said it in you know under a minute, and they take much longer. Absolutely, literally, everyone in the process are like, and here you can see we're taking a photograph of this frame, and now we're taking a photograph of this frame, <laughs> now we're taking a photograph of this frame. And we're taking a photograph of this frame, and now we're going to send it over to the next stage in the process. And it's a guy with, like, you know, on on Photoshop, essentially. Right. And he's like, well, what you see is the colors. Look what I can do with the colors. They're a bit sharper now, aren't they? And then in this frame, there's there's a bit of a blur. So what I can do is I can go to the next frame, and I can cut this part. And then if you go back to the original frame, I can paste it in. 
and I think you'll find that that, that really sharpens the picture. And it's astounding! And there's, it's just like, that's all the, the special features. Well, you know, I think there's this thing, uh, that sets in. I mean, it's, did you say it's the 30th anniversary? So I don't know for sure, but I'm willing to bet that they probably shot most of their wad on the 25th anniversary. You know what I mean? Like they keep putting out these features uh, unless unless the 30th anniversary is the first full Blu-ray restoration. I, I, I'm sure. I, I think this is actually the first full Blu-ray restoration. But it. I'm sure there was also like a 25th anniversary. Sure, on DVD. or You know what I mean? Like I just feel like having had the DVD fever and watch these things go i mean there's it just the number you know you've got to have the special features to justify the new edition but you're slowly running out of things that you can cover because some of it was covered before and you can oh like, no they they covered documentaries back yeah. in there yeah no i'm sure i'm sure they did but again i have that thing of i sort of wonder if it wasn't like you know Chuck Dixon, inside the mind of a creative genius, you know, isn't something that actually popped up on like the 20th anniversary <laughs> one. And now that they're like secrets behind the clamshell, the Blu-ray exclusive look into the Blu-ray packaging of the 30th anniversary edition. You know what I mean? Like you just kind of start. Like, well, they, do have, they do have a, a, a bit about the artist trapping the cover for the the. The yeah. 30th anniversary. See, there you go. There you go. You cannot believe how desperate they're going to be by the time the 40th anniversary edition rolls over. You know what I mean? It's going to be salute to the fallen, you know, the brave soldiers who helped put together the 30th I, anniversary I, I, edition, I, you know. I can only hope it's not going to be a 40th. <laughs> I hope not, but it wouldn't surprise me, you know? Like, I mean, it's amazing watching, being a fan, film fan, and, like, just the number. I remember trying to figure out which t version of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre I should get, because there were so many anniversary editions and stuff, and it was just, it was absurd. You know, people just kept trying to, like, juice a little bit more profit out of it by, like, right. and, and you know their fans were buying all of these mm -hmm. oh absolutely absolutely you know um I, which i kind of get i mean i of course i'm going to kind of get i'm the guy who bought comics in the floppy the trade the omnibus and the digital format of course i'm totally going to get that but, well, you know. okay so i i was thinking this while watching the transformers thing mm -hmm. which is you get a lot of you know multiple editions of books mm -hmm. like i you know Watchmen, for example, I want to say it's had, you know, or Sandman, mm -hmm. have had multiple re releases. Right. But I feel like you don't have, like, the anniversary releases. Do you know what I mean? Like, Watchmen has had lots of printings, and there's been a hardcover, and there's been an absolute, mm -hmm. and there's been a recolored version. Mm -hmm. But I feel like they've not been like, it's the same book, but now there's some special features. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's weird. Like, I, I think it's. I think you can get away with watch with buying Watchmen once. Although, oh. having said that, how many times have you probably bought Watchmen, Jeff? Uh, I've. Uh, uh, well, that's a good question, Graham. There were the original issues when they came out. Uh, there was the first trade paperback. 
back in the day, I used to loan out the trade paperback um, and then never get sure, it back. But, so, but, but yeah, like no, 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 I know. That doesn't really count. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I had a great situation where I think when uh, Rich from Bleeding Cool pointed out that there was a version of Watchmen uh, available for the Amazon Kindle for like 99 cents because it was like a weirdo mistitled file or something like that. I bought that. And then I think I bought all the individual issues digitally on sale at some point. And then, God, do I have it as a trade again? I don't remember. I might have turned around and then just been like, ah, fuck it, I'll buy it as a trade. And then, <laughs> so, so I don't know. And in fact, at one point, I think I did buy the Absolute Watchmen edition um, and then was just like, oh, Jesus, what the fuck was I thinking? You know, Um so I'm super curious about that. Like, I have an absolute new frontier, mm-hmm. um, which I, I did get because there was the extra pages mm-hmm. in the end. Um, but I can't imagine. Oh, I also have absolute uh, also Superman. Superman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't imagine if I had like a collection of something already mm-hmm. that I'd go. Oh, I want to spring for the absolute because I don't, must see this art bigger. Yeah, actually, the absolutes were. I think the. Well, I take that back. There's a few that I've gotten in absolute editions, not a lot. Like I want to say that maybe I got the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, um, in absolute, and I actually thought it looked a little bit better, um, at that well, size and with the color. Yeah, I, I, or whatever, I can actually but, believe that with Kevin mm-hmm. O'Neill's art. Exactly, it was kind of weird. Kevin O'Neill's art really scaled up like super nicely. That was lovely. Um, yeah, I, but no, I, I totally get what you're saying. Like, I felt kind of foolish getting them. I think at the time I got the, the absolute watchman because again, there's just something about that. Um, uh, at, at the time I remember being really struck by, uh, some of the imagery when it's that bold and it's that big, like it's especially like on the cover. I think if they do it right, I kind of have that big, salivary kind of like oh i want this kind of thing and then i don't know for myself as someone i really don't have a lot of the um absolutes i don't have the idw like fucking original artist edition things either because those are so big and i know that's a little different from what we're necessarily talking about but although i keep seeing those at the conventions and i was being like if it, it's put it this way if i actually saw physically in front of me any of the Kirby ones I know that I'd be like I I can't spend this in a book I can't spend this in a book yeah. I can't spend this in a book while probably you know getting my wallet out <laughs> <laughs> for, know, for me I, I think that's what would put me over the edge yeah for me I just can't I it's the the size is t- kind of too crazy if we lived anything other than a dinky apartment but that well, the artist editions look gorgeous but they're Bigger than actual furniture yeah, we have in our place. Yeah, they're, they're you know? really, really big. Yeah. They are. At least the, the absolutes I can tuck away on a bookshelf and sort of feel like, oh, they're like books. You know, it's, it's I don't know. You know, it's funny. I, oh God, why do I feel like there was something that I was going to, oh, you know, I actually had one of these situations where, um, cause you know me, I'm like Mr. Digital now. I'm like reading all this stuff on my iPad. I'm digging it. Have a little bit of money, and I'm like, yeah, I wonder if I should get myself one of those, the, the iPad Pros, you know? Just like this, the big o mondo size so, one. So you have more than a little bit of money. 
Well, well, I don't know. Depend. It depends. Aren't, aren't they? Aren't they pricey? I'm, uh, they are. They are. There's no, no, no. They're not. They're not necessarily that cheap. But I mean, this is where we get into that weird Graham McMillan world slash Jeff Lester world of you know what, yeah, what's okay, pricey, Mister Big Shots. Okay, well, get, I'm not get, saying get that. I'm saying, I'm saying. Shots. I'm saying you're a big fan of being a little shot. You're just like, oh my god, Jeff. Jesus, two hundred dollars for a tablet. Ah, oh, my god. I'm still using this. Kindle Fire that Kate gave me that she found on the street and it almost works for my purposes. I just have to spend 20 minutes like hand cranking it in the morning with this generator. The sad fact is you're not a million miles away from the truth, but at the same time, I can't, I genuinely cannot imagine spending $200 on myself. See, and that is that, that, that's what I'm saying. If you can't imagine spending $200 on yourself, which I totally believe, and I did, I, you know, I, makes me want to tear what's left of my hair out then of course anything that i'm going to say about these about these ipads are going to be like you're going to be like well yeah absolutely because that's six or seven times what i would not be willing to spend on myself you know so but yeah i kind of was like you sell your comic books for a certain amount of money you have some extra cash lying sure, around yeah, sure you're like well maybe i should get myself a you know since i'm mainly reading digital maybe i should do it in style so go to the Apple store. I've looked at these things before, but I picked this thing up and it drives me crazy because, of course, there's all this blibbity blue in the Apple store that they want you to look at. And it's you're just like you get t hands on time with it. But it was like, why don't they have like comicsology on this motherfucking thing? Like they have iBooks on. Exactly. On why, why can't I actually open up the thing that I want to use it for exactly exactly so it's so they have ibooks on it and you but i'm i'm shocked like at that larger size you would think they would put picture books on it you know like actual photography or something or you know again like they carry graphic novels in the ibook store like put one on there but instead it's like the closest i get is like charlotte's web so anyway so i go to comiXology the app or is it the website? I think I went to the website and was able to like click on the first comic that popped up. And you know how like Comicsology will show you basically the cover in three pages, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, oh, this is great. This will work for testing purposes, right? I will, I can at least do this. I will look at the front page in the first three pages. I don't remember what the comic was. I want to say it was something. Uh, this is going to sound like an idiot. Who's the Who's the company that's publishing Insects by Marguerite Bennett? Uh, Aftershock. Yeah, Aftershock. I want to say it might have been an Aftershock comic. No, no, no. I take it back. Uh, no, maybe it was. Anyway, it was either that or I want to say, isn't Derek Robertson doing a book for uh, Acclaim now? Uh, no, he's doing a book for Valiant. He's Sorry, Valiant. Yeah. Arbinger Renegade. Yeah. There we go. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was something else. I don't remember. I think it was. I think it was Harbinger writing a gate, right? So I open up the three pages of it. I'm looking at it on the super big iPad. And one of the things that I definitely learned is, like, most comic books probably should not be looked at at this size and format. You know what I mean? Like, it was just kind of like, the colors were nice. This is, I guess I'm looking. Like, you're sort of like, oh, wow. Like, hmm. Yeah, most of those people's uh, heads that look like thumbs, you get to look at them in, like, big high resolution. <laughs> they don't even really look like well-defined thumbs. That's great. Wow. <laughs> you know, like, there's just kind of that thing. Like, yeah, I, it, I mean, it, may, it makes sense. Like, 
DC made money on these absolute volumes, but there's probably a reason why there wasn't like an, I don't know, you know, absolute wild dog or, you know, I'm just trying to think of like some book with just crazily generic art. I mean, oh yeah, yeah, you're, you're, I mean, but not even crazily generic, just there's a lot of artists work who that doesn't scale up. Yeah, it just doesn't scale up. I guess is what I'm saying is, is they, you know, comic book artists, God bless them. A lot of them, they're, you know, they're having to draw ridiculous amounts of stuff with, you know, with the art of visual storytelling and crank that in like month in and month out, you know, just like when you see those pages where it's like a crowd of people and they're just all just bad triangle shapes, you know, and stuff like that. You're like, I don't really need to see this this large. You know, which, considering the batch of comics that I've read in the last couple of days, mostly on digital, is really kind of amusing because... Okay, so so well, now you have to tell me what you've been reading lately. Ah, well, I, I think I shall. Thanks to the miracle of um, Marvel Unlimited, I finally got around to reading this book that raised oh so much hubbub on the internet. Remember back when we were having the vapors over Captain America being a Hydra agent? Oh, yeah, yeah, issue one just appeared in Marvel Unlimited. Exactly. And I was like, I got to read this. And, you know, I have to say, reading that comic book, I was like, oh, man. Um, you know, I was so nostalgic <laughs> for the days when we were just nostalgic all whipping ourselves Black into a frenzy. Black, that was a big deal. Yeah, no kidding. But also, I have to say, it wasn't, it wasn't a bad comic. I remember you telling me it at the time. It'd be like, oh, yeah, it's great because Spencer's really a huge Grunwald fan. And um, that definitely is borne out in there. Although I think it's interesting the way that – the two things that I really want to give Spencer credit for uh, upon reading Captain America Steve Rogers issue one is, is that, A, I thought that it was – a, a good first issue like it had enough of everything that made me feel like oh this is a pretty good comic but i was also really aware like it's like 30 or 31 pages you know and i have had this suspicion sometimes more so with the marvel guys than the dc guys for whatever reason because i remember reading one of bendis's avengers annuals and after i put it down i was like oh i feel like i read a complete comic you know i sometimes yeah. wonder if the dc if marvel's some of marvel's guys would be better served if their comics were just regularly 30 pages you know instead of 20 i don't know i i've been i've been thinking similar things and i'm not sure i've been thinking as far as much as 30 mm. but i have been reading like i i read read a bunch of relatively recent marvel comics mm -hmm. uh on unlimited recently but i also read and I could not tell you why. The first, I don't know, uh, year and a bit of the second uh, David Michelini Bob Layton run in Iron Man. Ooh. So we're talking like 87, 88? Mm -hmm. uh, just after issue 200 when they come back and leading into what I always thought was called Armor Wars. And it turns out it was actually called Stark Wars. Oh, huh. I, I know it's been collected as Armor Wars, and definitely the sequel was even called Armor Wars 2. But the storyline is actually called Stark Wars in the comics. Huh. Um, and it's... Those comics set a sort of baseline of competency. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which sounds much more like I, I'm damning it 
that I'm intending to. Mm-hmm. But there's so much in there that I feel that you only get on a you know special issue right. of a contemporary Marvel comic. Mm-hmm. There's there's just so much information that's in the comics back then, and especially those those um, Michelinie Layton Iron Man, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they always make a point. To the point where it gets hilariously repetitive when you're reading a, a bunch of them in one sitting. Yeah. Of of explaining Tony Stark's status quo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whatever his status quo happens to be at that point. And that status quo almost always will include uh, Tony Stark is rich, he's inventive, and he's amazingly attractive to women. Uh, even beyond the Iron Man stuff. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, Iron Man will be whatever he's doing, but there will almost always be a scene of Tony Stark being irresistible to a woman, Mm -hmm. or multiple, um, while simultaneously having an interior monologue where he's talking about some invention he's thinking of. (laughs) (laughs) And then he will buy his way out of a problem. Hmm. And there's something about the way that you... That they actually always take the time to do this. Mm-hmm. That you just don't get in modern comics. Mm-hmm. And especially not in modern Marvel comics. Uh, but you do in like the first issues, or do you know what I mean? Like when there's the extra space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, when there's, when you're not just having 20 pages to play with. Yeah. That you actually get some sort of like, oh, we should explain the context for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, exactly. Like we have to set up the context and, and I think you're right. I think that does tend to happen a lot more in the first issue. Like they were really careful in that cap issue to, it's like, okay, here's the status quo and it's set up and explained for you in about two or three different ways, which, uh, you know, I, on the one hand, I'm like, this is useful, you know? Yeah, exactly. This is good. I have, you know, especially for you, like I have not been reading the Sam Wilson Captain America book. I didn't right. read Standoff, so mm-hmm. it's actually useful for you to tell me what is going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, uh, but it's but it's a shame because I sort of uh, a lot of the other stuff that I've been reading. I mean, I'll, I'll cover some of it, but I I've, today I read an embarrassingly high number of issues of um, the Son of Satan issues of Marvel Spotlight, like. Basically, I think I just read Gadzooks like two, four, six, eight issues today. And uh, it's, you know, because there's the point where Steve Gerber comes in. And what's kind of amazing is, is that he has like, there's like one or two scenes where he he's trying to introduce the various um supporting cast in son of satan and and one of them is like this police dude and one of them is this reporter and it's all for whatever reason everyone was decided like okay what's the most satanic city in the united states clearly it's st louis missouri so for whatever well, I mean, reason yes well sure exactly so even though he starts off it's he's you know, it starts off with this sort of Massachusetts thing. He gets, you know, inexorably pulled to St. Louis, Missouri, and you start pulling together his supporting cast. But literally, again, in that way that 70s Marvel comics do, it 
takes like maybe six issues before all of them get in the same room together, frankly. Yeah. So you've seen the scenes where it's like the, you know, the police detective in the trench coat is always like, mm, I'm going to have to talk to this Damon Hellstrom. Something doesn't smell right. You know, and meanwhile, there's like tough reporter Dan Crandall, who like, God help him, can't even be drawn the same from like issue to issue. Is he actually called Dan Crandall? He actually is called Dan Crandall. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. It's such that, a great think, name. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it actually took me back a minute. I'm like, what? Who's the Who's the guy who drew Crossfire? Oh, Dan Siegel. Is that Dan Siegel who drew Crossfire? <laughs> no, uh, Dan Spiegel. Dan Spiegel. Yeah, Dan Spiegel. I I was getting confused with Reed Crandall, of course, from from Blackhawk. I was like, wait, is this some sort of weirdo shout out thing? Uh, anyway, so there's there's like an opening scene where I mean, because Steve Gerber's taken it over, there's like an enormous flaming serpent floating in the sky over St. Louis uh, at the beginning of this one issue. And, you know, the reporter's staring out the window, looking at it, and uh, Tracy, his, you know, the, the paper's office assistant, shows to see if he's seen the photos that are coming off the newswire that's like volcanoes blowing up. And they're worried that it's the end of the world. But there's like this two-page sequence where he's talking to her and he sort of comforts her and he you know, goes from calling her Tracy to Trace or whatever. And by the end, time you get to the end of it, I mean, needless to say, she never shows up again, or at least not through issue 22 yet. But I had this kind of crazy thing of like, oh my God, like, you know, it's, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's like the... Um, it's like comic books version of the Bechtel uh, factor, you know, the Bechtel test. But like for comic books in the 70s, it's like, are there two characters that can actually have a conversation that's not about the main character of the book? And I mean, it's kind of technically it is, but it's also like, you know, I mean, because the, they're talking about the incipient disaster, but they're basically just there to provide exposition you know, in a sort of somewhat semi-flashy way, what with the the photos of the volcanoes and all the, you know, the horrified expressions on them. You're like, oh, okay, the world's going to blow up and it matters to these because there are these little people that are at stake. But it just, mm. it just also had that thing of like, man, I'm just such a sucker for kind of like, I don't know, is it just me or I just kind of feel like it's supporting characters just seem like they're really hard to come across. Um, you know, because well, the yeah, of it, it's it's funny when you said yeah, when you said the Bechtel test, mm -hmm. uh, I I I was going to say it's really weird these days to see a conversation in a superhero comic that isn't about the a plot of the comic. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, you know, it's it's not just that that you get um, you don't have supporting characters anymore. Mm -hmm. But it's that even if you do have supporting characters, the supporting characters will show up to basically go, here's something that directly relates to the A-plot of the comic mm -hmm. that you thought of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there, it's great rereading old superhero comics because there are times where the, the supporting cast come in and they have nothing to do with the main plot. Yeah. Yeah, they you have. Know, yeah, it, exactly. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. they're, they're kind of there to remind you that they're there. And usually if it's a 70s Marvel comic, like drop some sort of like uh, now incredibly dated cultural reference, you know, exactly. it, although, you know, we're spoiled for reading the Fantastic Four, which is wonderful for that. Yeah. 
when someone would just drop a reference, we were like, oh, really? <laughs> right. Gong show again? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Here's an extended gong show cameo. Here's, you know, what Ben Grimm feels like name dropping while he's sitting in the tub. You know, it's. Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, it, I, one of the things that I read this week is because of the holiday, DC got their. They're composite super early, so I've read next week's, uh, some of next week's DCs. Mm-hmm. And one of those is Marvel, uh, sorry, is Batman Annual. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has a, it's a, it's an anthology, so you've got Scott Snyder's story in there, you've got Tom King's story in there, uh, Ray Fox does a story, and Steve Orlando does a story, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and they're all like, you know, eight to ten pages. Mm-hmm. They're, they're short stories. The Tom King story, is is great because it's another of these stories, and I'm a sucker for these stories. It's another of these stories where it's not really about anything, mm-hmm. but it's something. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's you know, essentially, it's a story about feelings. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And what I mean, what it's really about is uh, it introduces Ace the Bat Hound. Oh my God! Really? Right? Yeah. Wow. Um, but it's it's you know vignettes across the series a number of months mm-hmm. and when i say vignettes i'm talking about like you know a panel mm-hmm. per week or something mm-hmm. and so you see like you know behind the scenes of lots of different cases including a one by batman says um what is no beginning middle or end a donut of course but why a donut which is such a wonderful <laughs> tom king line <laughs> such a great tom king line <laughs> um but it's you don't you don't really get stories like that in superhero comics anymore. I, I, I rather you didn't, and I feel weirdly enough that with the the frequency of the rebirth comics, mm-hmm. you're seeing writers more willing to do stories that don't you know aren't part one of six, mm-hmm. and are willing to do the. I mean, Superman has been great for this. Mm-hmm. The Superman series has been really good for like it's a two part story. Mm-hmm. It's a one part. story. You know, it's the, we've had the big fight, let's go to the fair afterwards story. Mm, right. Uh, or the Green Lanterns comic had a two-part story, which was essentially uh, Jessica has to go to Simon's house for dinner. And they were both really freaked out about it. Right. And I, and I love that. Mm-hmm. But that's, it seems like, it seems novel, and it shouldn't, because we grew up in comics like this. We did. Well, and I, I, I think that's the thing that, you know, it's my, you know, Jeff's ho- preferred hobby horse number three of five, is, is everyone's rush to make these comics seem, quote unquote, more professional. Everything has a kind of, um, boil and bag screenplay feel to it where it's like oh yeah all this stuff this has to tie to that this is this this person's conflict is super personal because so and dos did this to that person's family member you know or it's some member of the team betraying the other members of the team i mean those things are fine it's again those were also sort of being done in the 80s but sort of in a clunkier clumsier fashion you know well and also they weren't always being done right and they weren't always being done there wasn't there wasn't you know, always there, there that were, idea of eternal there was a breather mm-hmm. yeah. yeah 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 you know you'd have that story but that would be like the big story of the year and then you'd have you know spider-man versus the ringer 
Right. The month yeah. after, you yeah. know? Yeah. I have to say one of the things that's, uh, um, that I think does a surprisingly good job of giving me that in a weird way is because of the way the DC Suicide Squad comic is structured with the A story and the B story and the B story is usually a background origin story. Yeah. It has a different pacing to it, you know, and it has that it's it's interesting to me how uh Williams is able to have his like eternal engine A story in literally the first story of the book and even it has some pauses and breathes and breaths and beats in it but the um but there's always that B story and the B story itself because of the format in which he has it set up it seems like a more um you know, it's just paced differently. It's got a, it has a different feel to it depending on the artists that are working on it or the tone that he's trying to do. But it just innately has a more, I can't really go all the way and say elegiac tone, but you know, it's usually somebody in jail talking about how they ended up, you know, turning in to jail. a life of crime. Yeah, 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 exactly. So there's, there's not necessarily, however, even if Williams puts the dramatic beat in it, which he does, it's rarely set in the present moment, you know? So mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, it's but, but, it, but it does, it does serve the, the breath. It, it serves mm-hmm. the purpose of like, it's not always the end of the world. Yes. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, or the, the idea that there are these personal stakes you can, I don't know. It's, it, it is interesting. I, I don't want to be just Mr. Like old grumpy pants, like, Oh, comics were better when I was a kid. Cause you know, comics were kind of crap, but like, I, that's just like, that's, that's demonstrably not true. Yeah. It's just, it was a different purpose, which arguably it would be better for today's superhero comics to remember. And, mm-hmm. and I think, really, a lot of the Rebirth comics are. I think and I so, think too, yeah. Marvel wants to bounce back. I think they're going to have to start adopting that as well. And also, I think they probably will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suspect they will. I think, I, I, I don't know, there's, um, Marvel has been so addicted to its events over the last few years that I feel like, as as used to be the complaint that no book could really get up enough momentum on its own before the next event sort of came in and took over, you yeah. know, and, and I do sometimes worry that that's, I don't know, that Marvel needs to definitely change that. I, I certainly have a lot of freedom with the DC Rebirth books to pick them up or not, um, you know, and, and feel relatively comfortable in doing so. You know, like, I, I think I told you, you know, I'm reading the Deathstroke book by uh, Priest, and that's, that's, that is such a minor book in a way, but A, I'm really enjoying it, and B, what I find fascinating is that it is, uh, as I think we've talked about, it's because the bi-weekly publication schedule sort of somehow makes minor comics seem like less of a crime and more of a, uh, something to actually enjoy, I suppose. Yeah. I, I think that one of the, I think that's intentional. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that hasn't really been talked about enough with the rebirth is, you know, lots of people are talking about how it was 
retro and nostalgia and, you know, harkening back to the previous versions of the characters. It's also as a line harkening back to uh, an earlier form of superhero comics where you can have a diversified line where not everything ties into the big story of the, of the moment mm-hmm. and so that you have these wide issues in between. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's what adds to the freshness. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong, but I, I just feel that one, I think that one of the reasons that Rebirth feels particularly fresh is that whether intentionally and, you know, as a top-down edict or not, it feels that many times like the superhero comics of the 70s. Mm. You can have books that feel um, off in their own world and coherent in and of themselves and don't necessarily crossover with everything else yeah that i think that's helpful i'm still not quite seeing as much a lot of the forward movement seems to come from the publication schedule as much as anything i don't really feel like it's really i'm not sure like something like deathstroke which has had i mean it's on i think i read issue six or maybe issue seven already and there are there's characters there and they've sort of done things but you know because it's priest there's so much he also i think works well in a bi-weekly format because his sort of byzantine plot noodling like when you're kind of barreling through two or three in a row you're kind of like oh okay this this makes sense or it's not too confusing i suppose you know even though there's going to come some point where you know five issues from now Someone's going to explain like the fifteenth plot twist, and I'll be like, "Wait, what? I don't, huh? I do not understand that at all." But, but it is. It's getting there. I mean, I, I don't want to say. Part of me is like, "Eh, the characterization is not." Rebirth is certainly closer. I feel to what I'm wanting these days from superhero comics. Uh, you know, uh, from today's superhero comics, I guess, because um, I find myself flipping a lot between you know uh stuff stuff from way back in the 70s and like i don't know like again marvel marvel unlimited i like that first captain america but i had that sneaking suspicion of like uh if the next issue is 20 pages or 21 pages i don't know if if it's going to be able to carry the ball far enough down the field for me to be like oh i had a i had a complete experience whereas like you know, one of the other things that I read off Marvel Unlimited, because Karnak number four came out, I was like, oh, been meaning to read this. I'll download the first four issues of Karnak and I'll read this. And it was, am- to me, I mean, that's one of those deals where I felt almost hoodwinked by the end of Karnak number four, because... <laughs> I um, What's really funny is Karnak and the first four issues that I also read this week. Oh, really? Be- wow. Because the four came up on Unlimited. That's and I was so like, funny. I remember reading the first issue and I've not read anything in between. Because it disappeared is the other thing. Mm-hmm. Like, publishing schedule was so wacky that it was really, it literally disappeared. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, oh, I completely forgot this book exists. I read all four issues. And I also, I don't, I'm not sure who doings is the right thing, but I definitely was like, what the fuck is this book? Yeah. What the fuck is this book? 
it's and it's hard for me because I honestly had that uh the I don't know I just I don't know I I I'm completely baffled by it because on the one hand the pacing in it is so odd I want to say the the isn't there like the end of issue one or maybe issue two is literally Karnak sitting down at a cafe in Berlin and like the opening of the next issue is him talking to the waitress about something. And I'm just, yeah, it's, it's, um, it, I want to say it's between two and three. Yeah. Like between two and three. And I was just like, Jesus, I'm looking forward to seeing how master plotter Warren Ellis explained this one out in his newsletter. You know, like I, as a master of pacing <laughs> figured, nah, why not just end it with a moment? Like what could be more tense than watching like an inhuman try and order a coffee in a different language? You know, like I just didn't know where he was going with, but also what I found fascinating to me was that I thought that Ellis had come up with a really good way to make the book suit his purposes in the first issue in the sense that you've got Karnak and he is now some, he's essentially a philosopher. He's magister um, Karnak and he's more or less has this religion that runs, you know, isn't quite nihilistic, but certainly had takes the broader it's picture. Essentially to the nihilistic. Where, yeah. Yeah. You know, so broad where essentially the, the little flecks of humanity are interesting to him only as observable events, I guess. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is it. Like kind of a book in which, you, you know, the, the book can match the point of view of the character who's basically zoomed so far back. There's no real sort of telling details. And for the first issue or two, Karnak himself feels like an actual construction you know someone who's fighting as much out of uh religious beliefs and whose view viewpoint of the world is so it it seemed like a new way for ellis to twist his own formula but by the fourth issue where he's saying some sort of snarky ellis thing or something i was like oh wow this book really collapsed pretty quickly like it it's it really collapses very quickly. And what's funny for me is you even give it to the end of the second issue. And I think the first, I think the first issue was really strong. And I think that as soon as the second issue, mm-hmm. it's, it's off the rails. And by the time you get to the fourth issue, you're just like, yep, I don't, I think everyone at this point is doing this out of a sense of obligation to finish the trade. And that's it. Yeah. It, it's amazing how fast the wind left those sails. Even in the second issue, I'm like, I feel like Ellis is kind of it's it's like watching his effort just drop by 50 percent each issue, you know. And so it's like the second issue, I'm like, okay, he's not quite there, but he's still on it. He can maybe bring it back like he's got some ideas he wants to get to. I forget is is issue two the the battle between Karnak and the uh, the other priest. Or does that happen in issue three? I want to say it's issue three because it's not that not after the artist change as well, which is another yeah, thing. So. Like, it, yeah, it, the fact yeah, yeah. that the artist change does really also does not help. No, it really doesn't. I mean, although it's funny to me how much the tone for the artist was 
kind of iffy in a way. Like, it's sort of like, here I am sitting, contemplating nothing. And it's like, sort of brilliantly evocative and bleak. And then it's like, here's Karnak, like, chopping off the top of somebody's head with two of his fingertips. And I'm like, does this guy not know how anatomy works? Like, even separate and apart from the impossibility of trying to draw someone being, you know, decapitated with a two-finger strike, there's still a little bit of that element of... I think the artist was like, well, the only way this really is going to work if I go super cartoony. So it's, I'm, but at that point I was just like, I don't know if this works. So when the artist change happens and then all of a sudden it just looks like, I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, it's, I'm like, what is that style? That sort of where everyone sort of vaguely looks like cartoon ghosts of themselves. You know what I mean? Like there's just. <laughs> That it's that style where it's just like everyone's just sort of blowsy and baggy and not quite corporeal enough, and uh, it was it was kind of like straddling the lines. But yeah, so by the time you get to the fourth issue of Karnak, I'm just like, wow! Like I don't, I mean, what's it currently up to? Do you know? Did they make it through the trade and then take a? I'm not even sure. If hiatus? Out is the thing. Hang on, let's wow. see. Karnak issue five. It must have come out. It must have. Well, because it's six months behind on Marvel Unlimited, so, you know. Yeah, but still. Yeah, true. Let's see. Karnak issue 5 came out September 21st, Jeff. (laughs) Karnak issue 6 is only available for pre-order. It's coming out in December. Shall we look at the... the, Let's look at the release dates for Karnak, shall we? Please. Let's... Issue 1 came out October 2015. Mm -hmm. Issue 2 came out February 2016. Issue 3 came out April 2016. Uh, and issue 4 was May 2016. <laughs> and then issue 5, as I said, <laughs> was impressively September. <gasps> oh my god. Oh my god. Ah. Sometimes I really I mean, feel that's, like... That's, that's a book that no one wants to work on. Do you know what I mean? Like, you can tell at that point... Because Roland Boshi is not a slow artist. Right. And Martin Ellis is putting out work monthly for fucking James Bond. See, this is where I really wonder about... I mean, it is... I I know. I, what's amazing is, is I honestly felt like Karnak was the first issue had some strange form of buzz. Like, I, I remember people well, the first talking thing, about the first it. people were super excited about yeah, that first. Yeah, it was kind of like, oh, hey, this is a new take. Oh, this works well. And reading it, I... I basically agreed. I was like, oh, okay, this is, sure, this, this. Sure, I, yeah, I, I can see how this can work. Yeah, thought. exactly. And then, ah, oof, just as issues go on, I, I wonder to what extent Ellis as editor for the Wildstorm. I don't, see, this is the problem. Yeah. I don't no, do. No, no, I, I, I'm true. I, well, I will, I will add to that. I wonder to what extent Ellis's Wildstorm duties distracted him, but also uh, to what extent Ellis agreeing to do that for DC mm-hmm. made Marvel just lose interest in the book. Well, yeah, or something, you know, is, is it, you know, or vice versa. Cause I, who can tell by these pub- publication dates, you know, where in that process things happen. It could well have been that, um, well, so the artist had quote unquote personal issues, right. That caused them to leave the book, even which caused this massive slave between the first and second issues. That's right. Um, 
but who i mean i don't know i i'm also reminded of you saw that teen titans is the first rebirth book to go off schedule no uh because because the artist jumped ship after a shoot one and he said it was because of creative differences mm-hmm. uh, and like a month later he's announced as working for marvel and that one of the new inhumans books mm-hmm. and it was one of those like so creative differences was marvel came to you with a big checkbook <laughs> We we don't know that. I mean, it's it seems uh, likely, but you yeah, know. really, we don't know that. Really, that he's you know completely done with working in the book, and then all of a sudden is off within the first issue, and within a month is announced as a as Marvel book. Well, within a month, yeah, I guess it's kind of unlikely. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I just have that thing. Admittedly, there's stuff going on behind the scenes, but my other half thing is like I'm curious if Ellis. Because I'm not – I just feel like Ellis is known for a lot of things at this point and, and like a long attention span is not one of them. And I wonder if how that's going to serve his, you know, the, the wild storm, you know, pseudo imprint of it, you know? I I am very curious about Wildstorm in general. Mm-hmm. Um, he's announced the two-year run of the main book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and did you see the bleeding cool? Like, here's the four writers who are going to work on it. Uh, like rumor that was like blatantly, obviously someone winding rich up. Anyway, <laughs> I think I do remember seeing that because it people was, were like, yeah, shit, who was I? I, I, I remember, remember, I remember two of the names cause it was Jonathan Hickman and Alish Scott. Yes, exactly. Right. And I was just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I I thought that was I thought that was uh, I thought that was pretty funny. I don't remember who the other two were. I mean, it's fine. I part of me is just I guess we'll see what happens. But I was surprised the extent to which, as a goon who just sat down to read himself some funny books, uh. Watch reading Karnak was just like watching someone like slip and fall off a rooftop, you know. And by dint of it just being one issue, me being eh, Captain America, Steve Rogers, number one, could be worse. Yeah, that that you know? second issue was nuts for that series. Yeah, that's that's what you've said. You, you think you know where it's going, and uh, it's funny. So by the end of the second issue, you're like, I think it's probably still going there, but this detour was very unexpected. <laughs> Really? That's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, um, I'm trying to think what to say without, like, spoiling it. It plays its hand much earlier than you expect to, I guess. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I, that's what I remember hearing, sort of, when, because, of course, the, the Twitter outrage was so extended on the first issue. And then on issue two, they were like, everyone was like, it sort of feels like they tipped their hat and, to what they're doing, like, and and more or less, like, gave themselves the out to roll it, like, winked at the reader to let them know what was going on just oh, in the it's, second it's, issue. Oh, it's not, it's not just a wink, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Right, it's a blatant explanation, right, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's literally, this is what happened, and this is how we can undo it. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, as as many people pointed out when it came out, like, the lead time on these books means that they they, they weren't backtracking because of the, the upset. Right. Like, this was clearly always the plan, but it's a wacky plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
to go, here's the shocking conclusion, you'll be shocked. And then the very next issue would be like, only joking, here's how we're going to undo it. <laughs> it's so, like, it's so weird. <laughs> yeah, it is very weird, isn't it? Um, but, I don't know, God bless. I mean... I, again, part of what I enjoyed about it was like, oh, here's Cap's new sidekick. And of course, hey, here's Rick Jones, who I hadn't been paying attention to. He's back. That's amazing. But I, I kind of had that moment. Oh, yeah. like, oh, Rick, like, Rick Jones is now anonymous, Jeff. That, that was the weirdest fucking twist ever. I was like. That's, that's like at the heart of the standoff crossover. Sure. Sure. I get and it. And also is like a plot thread from the Sam Wilson uh, series as well. Right. But it's just like, uh, it's part of it is, and I can't remember who came up with this. I want to say it might be Joe Casey, mm-hmm. that um, the the Teen Brigade is mm-hmm. a is a hacker, right? Which makes sense for how you're gonna have to update it, right? For yeah, today's yeah. people, because back yeah. then it's like a ham radio group or something like that. So yeah, exactly. You know. but yeah, it's, it's basically taking that to, to its its conclusion. <laughs> That it's like, and now he's anonymous, and you're like, really? Because that's dumb. <laughs> I just love the idea that Rick Jones is going to end up being like 60 years of like passing fads just sticking to that guy. Oh, exactly. You exactly. Know? I love also that like Rick Jones has somehow become Snapper Car, but dumber. Because let's face it, Rick Jones was essentially Snapper Car not as dumb when they yes. were both being published. Because Snapper was literally like showing up, snapping his fingers, being like, cool, daddy, oh, hey, what's the buzz? Yeah, he was I, great. I, Rick, would at least, Rick would at least come on and be like, I've got my harmonica, but look, I'm dropping LSD. And you're like, okay, sure. And now Rick is like, I'm fucking anonymous. <laughs> DC is like, thank God we just, we're just pretending a Snapper doesn't exist. Right, right, exactly. There was no Snapper Car. Car in the new fifty-two, somewhere there's a fucking stopper car in the new fifty-two. I'm sure Keith Giffen has brought him back. Uh, Keith point, Giffen, so. I'm ninety percent sure he's going to end up being the mastermind behind Tom King's Batman run because that would that would be about right. So it's like, yeah, you don't remember me, Batman? You know, it's like put that together. So, but yeah, oh, that would be so great. You'll have like the, the monologue caption where it's like that snapping. It's <laughs> Sounds familiar. Why? Why do I? What does snapping mean? Wait, that's snapping. Snapper? Dot dot dot. Question mark. It can't be. I'd be like, remember when I had my hands chopped off by aliens? Actually, a real plot, Jeff. I'm sure that's why I laughed. I'm like, that's the fucking best. I just, whoever came up with such a cynical idea of like, yeah, snapper car, let's get his hands cut off. No, 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 let's have aliens cut them off. Uh Do you know why that happened? Because in Invasion, do you remember Invasion? Yes. The the crossover? Mm -hmm. So snapper gets powers in Invasion. And his powers are that when he snaps his finger, he teleports. See, I somehow knew that Keith Given was behind him getting his hands cut off, but well, or suspected. But keep going. I, I yes, thought, yeah, I'm not sure it is Given. I oh. can't remember who who cut his hands off. But I want to say the hand cut hands cut off comes in the oh, because let's see, Snapper got powers in Invasion. 
that was in the Blasters one shot, which is still one of my favorite dumb comics ever. Uh, the Spider Guild, who are like Legion superheroes aliens, uh-huh. uh, no Omega Men aliens. They uh, they get involved with the the Blasters, who are like intergalactic superheroes. But because Peter David's writing it, it's Peter David of like 1989 or something. Uh, the Spider Guild are all named after Spider Man writers. <laughs> Oh God! It's like DeFalco <laughs> and friends and things like that. Um, but but then everyone forgets the blasters exist, and then the blasters get brought back in Valor, mm-hmm. which is like Monel series that existed for a, a while. And yeah. I want to say he gets his hands cut off there. Hmm. Again, I I you know I'm like oh okay so it was a Monel series. There's no way it could have been Keith Giffen. Like again, I'm just like there's you're never getting really far outside that Giffen zone, you know. Uh, yeah, he gets his hands cut off. That is the best. That really is just so. Oh God. Uh, 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 uh. Well, uh, Graham, uh, as delightful as it is to sort of think about Rick Jones and Snapper Carr and and all the future humiliations that we can look forward to the, having them uh, go through, uh, did, did you want to tell me about some of your other comics that you've read? I've got other comics to talk about. Don't worry. I, I've, what have I been reading? I've been reading a lot of Fantastic Four in preparation for Baxter Building, I have to tell you. Ooh, yeah. I'm totally unprepared. I- yeah, it's um, it's it's uh, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a trek for you, Jeff. <laughs> uh, speaking from experience, you might want to start reading now. Shit. Okay. Uh, because first of all, we're doing a lot. I don't know if you remember, but we're doing like two seventeen through two thirty one. We are. So like, yeah, so we're doing like a lot. First of all, and secondly, these aren't good comics. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. Man. Um. I've read I've read a bunch of 2018 stuff this week, and and rereading as opposed to like reading new. Mm. Um, been really into Rogue Trooper and Strontium Dog for some reason. Uh, uh, what have I read new? Oh, I read New Talent Showcase, which is another DC book that's coming out next week. Oh, interesting. Uh, and it's it's exactly what you think it would be, which is kind of the problem, you know? Like with the best will in the world, who really wants to read? Characters you already read the comics of, but by new people who have eight pages to play with. Eight pages to play with for a story that will make no, that won't matter. Like it really is such the classic, like all the things that you're supposed to do to make a comic sell, it seems like New Talent Showcase so frequently strips all of those out. You know what I mean? Right? And it's just, and you know, people are, you know, everyone tries their hardest. Don't Mm -hmm. get me wrong. But every single thing in the comic, you're just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know? <laughs> the strangest thing are the people who, because I want to say there's like six stories. The people who seem to use their eight pages as like a prologue for a bigger story. Wow. And you're kind of like, that's ballsy, but you, we both know that you're never going to come back to the story. <laughs> Like, there's a Flash Wonder Woman team-up that is literally, like, the prologue for a story. Hmm. Ends with Wonder Woman flying off to do, like, her Wonder Woman thing. And you know that it's never going to get picked up. You know? Or, um, there's a, a John Constantine story 
which reveals that he goes to hell and finds Zatanna's dad. Hmm. Which is just like, okay. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a bunch of that. Uh, the one mentioned Wonder Woman also reminds me, I did read the, the, this week's Wonder Woman, which hmm. is uh, theoretically the final part of the story of the lies. But final part only in so much as it really means final issue of that trade mm. because it doesn't finish the story at all mm. in in any respect. The thing it does do is definitively say, oh, yeah, all the new 52 Amazon stuff is shit. Hmm. It, it's fake. Mm-hmm. Um, which he, you know, basically really shone a light on at the start mm-hmm. like the the rebirth one shot is pretty much you know a signal that he's planning to do that mm-hmm. but but the the final like the, the the end of the issue is after having spent time with the amazons is one woman realizing oh i've never been back to paradise island these aren't the real amazons all all of this is fake <laughs> um so it looks like he's restoring the 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 old uh, setup. Many people were very happy. This does, after all, mean that Amazon's no longer raped and enslaved men. Mm-hmm. A- an interesting addition to the Wonder Woman canon. Yes, um, but it, I mean, I, I enjoyed it as an issue, and I, I'm enjoying this series overall. Mm-hmm. But it literally was sold as the conclusion, <laughs> and I got the edition. I was like, this is no. No fucking way is this a conclusion. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> like, if you're telling me it's a conclusion, don't, you know, don't end it with literally a cliffhanger. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that is a sign that you're not looking. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. Huh. The marketing on that, I don't know. I, I have no skin in the game, but I have to say that Rucka's undoing of the Azarello stuff kind of makes me, um, I don't know, anxious. Like all I can think, all I can think of is, is, is John Byrne being like, no, no, no. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's not, it's not a, it doesn't sound like it's a particularly subtle, you know, um, form of, oh, I'm going to take this story, work with it, change it, grow it, and whatever. It's it's Rucka being like, yeah, this didn't actually happen, you guys. And, you know... Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's explicitly this didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, Wonder Woman literally falls to her knees mm-hmm. and says that she's never been back to Paradise Island before. Wow. Which undoes almost all mm-hmm. of the, the, the Azarella run. You know, all, all that we need now is for someone to reveal that the the Olympians during the Azarella run are also fake. Right. You know, that's it. Then then it's entirely undone. I mean, it's not undone in the sense of it still happens to Diana. Mm-hmm. But that is that's tenuous, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then bear in mind, like Superman has gone even more so. Like, the Superman mythos at this point, it's not, like, they have literally killed off these Superman and Lois who existed for the New 52. Right. Killed them both off. Mm-hmm. And Lois Lane of the old continuity has literally taken over 
the new 52 Lois Lane's life, mm-hmm. job, career, whole shebang, and no one has noticed. Right. You know, with the best intentions, you know, Dan Jurgens is at least writing it as she's convinced someone will realize. Mm-hmm. But it, it's clearly not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like they're trying as painlessly as possible to slip these characters in so then they'll be like, everything's fine. <laughs> it's exactly the characters you expect you remembered, except yeah. now that there is uh there's a baby too. I say baby, he's he's a kid. Yeah, I it's just odd to me. It's odd to me because I don't I only read I read very little of the new fifty two Superman. It, you know, I, I in total. I tell you that I don't think you missed a lot. Well see, and that's kind of what I feel is apart from like Various people's takes on the stories, I feel that one of the things that was really tough was a little bit of the who the new 52 Superman is and who Lois is in that book, like really just seemed to whipsaw back and forth between it's like, this is our new take on them. This is everyone treats them exactly the way that everyone's treated those characters before. You know, and it yeah. just never really seemed to gel. So the idea that they're sort of like they murdered those characters are dead and then they slip these other characters into their narrative is just kind of hilarious and interest like interesting and weird. Just really weird. It just doesn't make any it it it's, I guess I'm going with it. I'm only reading, I only know about it because of the stuff that keeps coming out in the Superwoman book, which just gets weirder and weirder with each issue. Right. Oh my God. That issue, that book is, uh, I don't know. I, I suspect, uh, uh, you know, a month or two months ago, I was like, yeah, I'm kind of into this to where I'm like, yeah, this thing's maybe got like another two or three issues before I think I'm out of it. Cause it just is too, it's, 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 I don't know what it is. Like it's, it's literally the story is just churn, you know, like it's it, it half of the momentum from the story seems to be stuff going on in the other super books, I suppose, you know, Mm -hmm. when it's not doing its own story about Lex and Lexa Luther or whatever. And I I just find myself being very, um, it's just impossible for me to really tell, like, like even five or six issues in, I'm like, okay, I kind of get a sense of who Lois Lane is. I mean, Lena Lang is, who's the main character, you know, by dint of it being in her head all the time. But I also kind of don't. And there's just so much going on that it's a lot of, um, again, it's, it's, it's almost like reading a book that is, uh, in between, uh, issues of a crossover, you know, like those, those things that take issues of a book that take place in between an event. Uh, of a big event book. And so people are rushing in and referring to things that aren't actually happening in the book itself. And you assume are happening someplace else, but you don't really know. But half of what they're trying to do is tell you all that exposition so that I, I don't know, I guess you can be lured over to the other issues. Um, I'm just finding it really odd. And I think I'd be more down for it. The first issue, you know, was written and drawn by Phil Jimenez. And there was just something like Jimenez is such a 
busy artist, but I've kind of felt like it worked. But now I they I don't remember who the artist is on the the most recent issue that I read. It's Manuela Lapacino, isn't it? I sure, Graham. Yes, that was. I, I think it is. I I, I want to say she is the the second artist on both Superwoman and Supergirl. Oddly enough. Huh. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it, it just, where I feel like I think she's working from his layouts or else she really felt like she had to imitate them. Cause there's like a lot of panels on the page and a lot of, but somehow without Jimenez's sort of, you know, Perez inspired eye for unnecessary detail, really. <laughs> it's know? not good. The overly, uh, busy rendering. Right. Right. Which, again, part of me was like, I felt like Jimenez's work really made sense in the context of that first issue of Superwoman. Because I'm like, oh, yeah, it's overly busy. I'm like, the entire fucking issue is, like, overly busy. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's like if you force-fed Aaron Sorkin a bunch of caffeine or something. It's just just, just so <laughs> fucking jittery, you know? And And then the later issues are just people who are like okay i understand i have to do this but this is uh kind of um uh we might be okay some of these characters might be looking like cartoon ghosts of themselves is all i'm saying don't blame me i had 36 panels to put on this page so i don't know uh also i have to say batgirl i graham are you still in the tank for this because i finished that uh, i I, arc. I would love to claim to be in the tank but that would involve me having read the last couple of issues which i haven't Boo. Boo. <laughs> i i i remained in the tank for the first three i guess i read yeah as long uh, as you're getting the freebie issues and then once the freebies were over you're like ah, i guess i'm out of the tank I, I still have the fucking issues i just haven't read them i am i am I, I, honestly at this point the publishing schedule is overtaking me as rebirth mm-hmm. like there's so much coming out mm-hmm. and i have so little free time mm-hmm. like uh, for example green arrow is a book that i'm really enjoying and i am at least four issues behind the green arrow and I'm just like, I know I have, you know, issue nine somewhere. It's in some pile. And it's the same with Batgirl. Like, mm-hmm. I have it somewhere, mm-hmm. but I I don't know where, and I don't really have time to go and look for it right now. Right. Well, which, again, is one of those reasons why I'm finding that uh, for me, and I don't think this would necessarily work for everyone or possibly anyone else but – but for myself, having some digital subscriptions to some of these DC books is kind of helpful because, you know, there's a few books that I decided that I would um, subscribe to at through Comics Experience. So, like, for example, I've got a very, my you know, the entirety of my physical comic book collection is very small. And it is something like four issues, maybe five issues of Batman that I'm utterly, utterly behind on. But in theory, all the stuff, like even today, when I started reading Deathstroke, I was like one page in, I'm like, oh, wait, 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 wait. I think I missed an issue. And sure enough, I was able to look back and, but it's very easy for me. You know what I mean? You just sort of look in my books under Comixology. I'm like, oh yeah, I've got, okay, I didn't read this one. That cover doesn't look familiar to me. I might as well reread issue five because I don't really remember what's going on. And it's very easy for me to get caught up to speed, I guess. 
Whereas even though that my comic book collection is really minuscule, easily handleable, I just have to go, you know, basically reach back below this one bookshelf and pull out the stack of comics. I'm kind of like, I want to read at some point, you know, and I really do think that I might be better served, certainly for something like Batman that's coming out every other week. I'm like, maybe I should switch to like a digital subscription. I don't know. You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's like. It's it it is interesting to me that it's kind of at least for me a lot of that stuff works is working a lot better when it is digital or well well that's that's just it like digital does help because mm-hmm. your tablet where you're reading you know issue nine is also where you would read issue eight exactly and so I've missed an issue I can lit- like I can literally go back and read it right now without moving from my seat exactly, exactly. whereas physically. I, I speak from experience. Mm-hmm. I have issues, te- I think, 10 and 11 of Green Arrow. Mm-hmm. Like, I can see them from here. But I <laughs> know where issue 9 is. Right. You know? Right. I know I have it. I just don't know where it is. And honestly, I'm not sure that I care that much to spend the time looking for it right now. Right. Right. Which is, which is, uh, I've been there. I, I, you know, on the other hand, I certainly find myself at one point, uh, cause I went to comics experience, uh, God, when was it a week and a half ago? I, it was, it was before the last time we talked and I have a bunch of stuff lying around, you know, at a certain point I was kind of madly flipping about in, on comiXology. I'm like, I kind of want to read something that's not superheroes or crime. Cause that's the bulk of what I have. And, and yeah. I remember that I picked up this volume of, uh, love at 14 by Fuka Mizutani, uh, which I guess is published by Yen press. And, uh, it's pretty much exactly what you think the title would be. It's like two 14 year olds who, uh, are in love, but it's, you know, so I'm like, ah, of course I got to read this. I'll dig it. You know, the, uh, um, it was recommended to me in the store and I'm like, okay, you know, if Douglas, the big emo guy loves it, I'll probably love it too. And, uh, it's, it's not bad. I mean, it's, it, it was such a relief to be able to just read stuff where it's like, oh man, it's an entire, you know, 12 page story centered around like two kids trying to figure out like how they're going to be able to like get through class without looking at each other. You know what I mean? Like, mm. on the other hand, I have to admit, part of it, by the time I got to the end, I'm like, wow, this is kind of a romantic manga that's written a, too much in the style of Jeff Loeb's Batman Superman comic, which was kind <laughs> of... Oh my god, that sounds like the greatest thing. <laughs> well, it would be great if they were climbing into a giant robot that was like half the guy and half the girl and they were like flying off to fight the, you know, drug hinge crazed uh, president of the United States or kryptonite uh, infected president of the United States. It, it, it was both. Yeah. He was turning kryptonite into liquid kryptonite and then injecting it. Okay, there we go. I knew it was close. I'm like, ah, it's, he's, no, kryptonite drove him crazy, but how? So. Hey, well, it was also kryptonite uh, mixed with venom. Oh, see, there was venom involved. Man, I gotta tell you, venom, venom's like the Rick Jones of the DC universe. That thing ends up in just about every. You, you do know that the Batman issues you have to catch up on are feature Bane, right? 
Oh, no. I, well, yeah, I guess I did realize that because he's on the cover of one of them. But, uh, yeah. Uh, well, that's, see, that's a shame. Well, whatever. I'll, 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 I'll have to read the issues and get back to you. I, I guess what I meant was just toward the end, there's way too many things of, you know, cut to one of them and there's a caption that's their thought, you know, their thought panel and they're thinking something about the other person. And then you cut to the other per the next panel is the other person looking back at them and their thought panel is them thinking essentially the same thing or that, you know what I mean? It's exactly, there's points where they're finishing each other's uh, sentences, word caption style, or they've got the yeah. same thought balloons. And I'm just like, Oh God, please don't let it turn out to be that, you know, Fuka Mitsutani's like, you know, Jeff Loeb's like manga debut that he did under a pseudonym in between, you know, um, storyboarding Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. season six or whatever. It just break my heart. But um, anyway, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, but I think that's the, the for me, the big plus about digital comics is it's like this nice little closed fishbowl where I can like I. I know where everything is and I can accumulate it. The, the problem is, is it sort of disappears into this sort of, I don't know, you know, universe turned in on itself. It's really hard to break outside and find new voices for it. I think, you know, despite yeah, what no. comiXology is trying to do, you know? Well, yeah, it's just, I was thinking about this the other day because I think even when you go into the comic store these days, there's so much of the familiar mm -hmm. that it's that you need someone to hand sell you new stuff mm -hmm. or you'll just never find it. Yeah. You know, I, I was actually looking through uh, previews, mm -hmm. which, you know, is always the best way to a find new things and b realize that no one will ever find new things. <laughs> I, I, a beast of a machine. You know, but you're like, here's a 400 page catalog where Fucking everything shit. you know is right up front. Yeah. And you have to get through that to get to the the rare shit. Yeah. It's uh whatnots, you probably know this, but Graham and I had the exact same job, albeit at different times, which is writing for the Comics Experience newsletter, you have to summarize, you get the previews black line basically the week before it's released. Anywhere from like five days out to ten days out, and you have to do write-ups of all the stuff that is noteworthy so that subscribers can sign up for it. And I, I Graham seemed to handle the task with like tremendous amounts of Elan, but it <laughs> really, cause it didn't feel like that. Oh, uh, well, because it's so hard to come up with any Elan at all. You can actually, you can actually watch people's like souls die on the page on previews. You know, when you're reading it, like, Watching whoever's writing the Marvel solicits, like you can see them like start out kind of hopeful, and then you can see the period where they just get wacky and whacked out on caffeine and they start throwing in crazy stuff, and then you can get to the part where they just sink back into the rigmarole, and then towards the end where they just lose all hope altogether. Really, it's obviously they've changed the Marvel solicits since then, Jeff. Oh, have they? Well, now the Marvel solicits are either written by the writer or the editor of the book. That makes sense. I, I guess you're right. I kind of forgot that because I think um, I saw some of the text that Gillen had said that he was writing for some of his stuff. So uh, that's true. 
That's very true. Because otherwise, because it was, it used to be when you and I did it, which at this point, like we're talking almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, it was clearly like the Marvel marketing department was writing it. Right. Or, or rewriting it. But you could, because the, the, the solicits even back then were amazingly long, uh, you could see people get, you know, they're putting the books they weren't excited about at the end mm-hmm. and they were exhausted by the time they got there. <laughs> Yeah. You know, you get to like, you know, Uncanny X-Men issue 432, shit happens. <laughs> exactly. Something rocks the X-Men's world that is so major, nothing will ever be the same again. It's like a, uh, we can't tell you about it here. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Yeah, something so big. But then, then there's the rest of previews. And yeah, I mean, it's amazing because, of course, there's all the smaller publishers. Then you've got all the toys and crap at the end. And so, yeah, you just have such thin slivers. Like, I really, you got to give it up for comics retailers, the ones who really do try. Because you have to work hard at trying to... Dig through, dig through to find oh, the gems. But, you know, but also, you're... you can't get that mad at the ones who don't when you go through previews every well, that's month. True. That is that's true. That's true as well. It's yeah. a really, it's really easy yeah. for people to say, "I can't believe retailers aren't going through previews every month." Think of all the stuff that they're missing at the back, and then you actually find yourself having to go through every month, and you do just wish it was over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As yeah. soon as you start. You get through Dark Horse and maybe DC, and you're like, holy shit, I've got Image and Marvel and all the independents to oh, do yeah. now? Right. Well, in the Image stuff, I remember particularly, I, I think things have changed up a little bit. But back then, oh, the Image stuff, because, you know, you're trying to write about you, all the stuff sounded the same. If you haven't heard yeah, of the it creators. Was all, it, was one, it would be one-word titles, mm-hmm. and this list would be like two pages, and it would be like, Darkness Falls. <laughs> Do you not remember when Image did that? There was an entire time where, because Kirkman was doing it for Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. And Kirkman's Walking Dead, so this would be super short. It'd be like, you know, loneliness beckons. And people would be like, well, Walking Dead sells a fortune, so sure. And right. then, you know, so here's my new book. It's called Chrysalis, Issue 1, <laughs> Reflections Call. And you're like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> I don't See, know who any of these people are. I don't know what this book is, and I don't know what the solicit means. Well, but I, but that's I, How you are know, fuck- well, exactly, exactly. I mean that that's vague, but I mean, you know, I think the other problem was when Image was publishing too much of stuff that was all exactly the same. So it was like yeah. Regsnor the Bloodthirsty Number One. You know, by Aaron Carr and John Pistretto. And then the the next Aaron book Carr there. and John Pistretto were a great team, though. <laughs> Their spawn issues? Man. You know, I would appreciate at least... I'm like, those sound like comic book creators. I made them up at the drop of a hat. I couldn't... I mean, yeah, don't tell me about the rest of Joe Pristretto's done. But yeah, anyway, my point being, and then the next thing would be like, Blood Tree, the Berserker, number one. And, you know, by by Aaron Pistretto and Joe Peskin, you know, and you're like, I don't know, what? So yeah, the descriptions were always embarrassingly the same. Anyway, so yeah, you get through all that stuff, and then you're like, okay, now I gotta try 
and find everything that is, you know, in that A through Z that were not the premier publishers, one of whom has been, you know, you've got Marvel who's like cranking out like 70 titles, most of which are number ones of a miniseries. So you have to write about them and image be, you know, that's cranking out like 35 number ones because chances are good. You'll, you'll be nine months before the number two comes out. Oh God. Oh Graham. Why did you put me down this? horrible horrible memory hole like i'm like uh i you know i've actually forgotten hey i don't suppose you read betty boop number one did you i did i've read betty boop number two as well oh what do you think i really wanted to like it more <laughs> i know i know i cause... like i was like roger language and uh, language and giselle i i like that's a great creative team yeah this, this will be great yeah. and and it's not but it's also not bad it's just i wanted to like it more i know <laughs> you know yeah i picked up that first issue in that dynamite line wide sale and i'm like oh great like 99 cents or whatever this is a price i want to pay to read this comic you know perfect sat down read it i'm like all those things i'm like maybe i don't know i just i i love language's other stuff on like popeye i'm like this is really going to work and wow that first issue just Ugh. So the second issue, it just, just lies there, doesn't it? It just does. I don't like it's 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 because it, I really don't think that it's bad. I think that it's just there. Like it it, it 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 never comes to life. You totally see what he's going for. Well, sure. I mean, you really but, but do. It, but it doesn't work. The 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 you know the idea of doing a musical in comics is. Mm -hmm. It's not a new thing. Like, I grew up on it. They did it in 2000 AD, I feel like, a lot when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, Language has done I, it a lot in his work, even, you know? And I feel that I should be more um, responsive to it, mm -hmm. but, but I was not. <laughs> I, I think the thing that's – and it's weird for me because uh, – because who knows? It's just it's just such a weird over, all over the place kind of thing. I mean, Betty Boop is one of those characters that somehow is I, I don't know, you know, like there's there's just accidents that happen in the universe. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, Polly Shore's now a movie star. You know what I mean? Like it these things happen, you know, but because Polly Shore, I mean, Betty Boop is the equivalent of that, but because she is um, an ageless intellectual property, someone every once in a while is going to be like, okay, let's, let's revive let's her. Let's bring her back. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, even when you see Lankridge doing what he's doing and getting us like, you know, she, it's tied to the, she's tied to a lot of stuff that was happening in music at that time. You know, he's I, like he's, he's doing everything right. Yeah, he's, it's the weird thing. Exactly, and the comic still does not work. And I'm I'm curious because I suspect part of me sort of suspects that that's always would be the case no matter what. And part of me also kind of thinks that although Giselle was a great choice for it, she's also maybe wrong or maybe not i again that thing of like maybe nobody can make this sucker work but i do I, have I'm, that i'm thing. gonna go with that because i i think that the work she's doing is again fine 
It's fine. No, no, it's really it's inspired, good. It's lovely. It's, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's not super inspired. I think, but I think that's it. I I almost feel like you can see how what language is doing is like, okay, I'm going to make this very idiosyncratic, and then everything about the way the book is produced sort of wipes away all that idiosyncrasy. You know what I mean? Like, you really need someone with a nice cartoony hand to cartoon it like it needs to look cartooned you know like even someone with like a shaky hand like i was watching it being like god what would this look like if of langridge was drawing this or like bobby london was drawing this you know or oh, i i think i actually think if language was drawing it it would be uh arguably worse do you think so yeah i did he just his art style does not seem like a a good fit at all with 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 the material, I think but, but I, I think I agree. Maybe with you, I'm wrong. No, I, don't I mean know. it's tough. It's tough because I think I see your point, but I'm sort of like I just just somebody with a bit of fuzz. But I think even that's not going to make up for it. I mean, the fact is, is that I it's I, just... I think that I I arguably uh, I would make the case that the the license might remove the fuzz. Does that make sense? No, right. Exactly. Like, I'm like, sure. I, I, think that yeah. it, I think that it may be a, a prerequisite for, for that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I hey, know. you know what? You know what I have read recently? Like, or again, reread, but um, Greg Pag's Battlestar Galactica comic oh. from God when? 2009? 2008? Something like that. Hmm. The, the, so it's, it's the the Reboot Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I basically inspired by the library having it mm-hmm. and me being like, I like Greg Pak. Like, I don't love Greg Pak, but I like him. Like, I think that his work is always solid. Right. Um, and I remember when the comic was coming out, me just being like, nope. Right. Nope. Not going to happen. <laughs> this, this, this is disastrous. Um, and it's, it holds up remarkably well. It's actually much stronger than I remembered it being. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, underscores that there are some things that just should never be comics. Not because Battlestar Galactica is such a, you know, wonderful property that it only ever works in the moving screen. Right. Uh, but that there's no space in that series to put these stories into. So you you can't do any like it, the, the pack series has a, a really strong hook, mm-hmm. which is essentially every every one of the main characters has experienced loss of a loved one. Mm-hmm. What if all of those loved ones came back, and they didn't know why they were back? They you know they don't remember dying, mm-hmm. but everyone else does, and of course it feeds into the Battlestar Galactica theme of like, well maybe they're Cylons. Like, maybe this is all right. massive mic fuck. Sure. But, like, it falls prey to, to the fact that this will obviously never be referenced in the show. Mm-hmm. So they're not staying around. Right. But simultaneously, they can't be Cylons either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's never referenced in the show. Right. You know? So you're like, this is a really good idea, and the execution is actually really strong, or at least the writing execution is strong. The art is is not totally consistent with the show at all. Right. Um, 
but it was doomed from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that there are just properties, and maybe Betty Boop is one of these. Well, see, the, this the, is the, the way in which Betty Boop and Battlestar Galactica fit together. Um, <laughs> there are just properties that just resist adaptation. Well, I mean, I think, as you point out, the problem with Battlestar Galactica was so much that that the show was on a path. You know, it was it was presenting itself as telling one story. And I don't know. I mean, for myself, licensed tie-in comics are pretty, are pretty tough sell. Usually unless I'm a bit more of a sucker for licensed comics, you know, where it's of of properties that are like, kind of like way in the rear view, you know, like the Planet of the Apes comics or something like that. Yeah, or or the Six Million uh, Dollar Man comic, which just recently finished and is actually surprisingly strong. Uh, yeah, but see, but of course I'm like, yeah, but they didn't even finish up the other six million other dollar one, man yeah, comic, I know, I know, which I, I thought was surprisingly strong. So there's no yeah. way I'm actually going to pay attention to it. But yeah, no, exactly. I mean, there's stuff like that where I'm like, I think I told you, I read that first issue of the Tarzan on the Planet of the Apes miniseries. And I thought that was surprisingly good. I really got to say that was, I was like, here's an idea that's never going to work. And then I was reading it being like, ooh. I'm, I think I'm wrong. And I really do need to give credit to that because that's actually co-written by, um, give me a second. It's, uh, by Tim Seeley and David F. Walker. And, uh, I, I was kind of like, oh, right. Tim Seeley, who, you know, we'd been talking about kind of not giving him enough credit. And it was interesting seeing the fact that he was co-writing this book and I'm like, oh, great, another chance to, like, steal credit from Tim Seeley and put it all in David Walker's feet. But, um, you know, I'm looking forward to doing that. But I think it really is. It's a it's a good book that somehow the both of them. But, like, Battlestar Galactica, yeah, I just remember at the time being like, there's no way this is going to work, kind of. Like, you just, you can come up with an idea that would be awesome if you were on the TV show, and if the TV show was doing it, you'd be like, oh yeah, this is great. But like you said, there's that weird, um, you know, for myself, there's that... Yeah, it doesn't doesn't fit. There's that loss of innocence that happened for me when the Empire Strikes Back uh, comic came out, for the Star Wars comic, and I read that adaptation, and you get to the end of it, and then it's like Star Wars is like, yes, and here we are telling more stories. And I'm like, the fuck you are like, you know, I know what you're doing now. You're, you just, you got to run out the clock between movies. How is that going to happen? And of course you've talked about the amazing, unless you pick up an appreciation for that, like what happened with the Star Trek films and the, oh, the which, which remains the high point. Amazing. You know. I you've you've read those comics, right? No, no, no. You've talked about them, and we have. Oh, I've, Jeff, got, I've you, got the D. I've got this DVD. Yeah, yeah. You have like one one Saturday where you're like, I I have nothing to do. I have absolutely nothing to do. You have to, you owe it to yourself to read those comics, specifically the ones that lead back into Star Trek Three. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's one. Sorry, so that's lead in Star Trek Four, uh, where they have to like. Re-stupidify Spock <laughs> and get the crew of the Enterprise off whatever ship they're on and back onto Vulcan. <laughs> and it's like the, they, I mean, I can't even remember who's writing it. Lightwing, maybe? Whoever is writing it, like, makes the most of it. Like, they really are going for it. 
But it's so hilarious. It's so amazingly obvious that they're like, we shouldn't have done anything. (laughs) We're fucked now. And you can tell, because afterwards, even though Star Trek IV, like, essentially recreates the status quo, Mm -hmm. um, the comic never really tries to do anything again. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, see that they're on their license. They're like, okay, that's right. Okay. Right. Exactly. We're not good. This, exactly. And then, and then that also, once you can tell that, you're just like, I don't see why I should stick around for this. Like, you know, I mean, what I find is fascinating because we've mentioned licensed comics a, a few times, and and some of our commenters have mentioned, um, over at the More website, than- yeah, like how the, basically they got into comics. Like licensed comics are a great way for people to get into comics, or used to be. Like I sometimes wonder if that can even be the case anymore. You know what I mean? Because it's just because everything's so easily accessible. I mean, even if it's not necessarily like say the sequel, like. I have to, I saw, uh, on the cruise, I saw like a shit ton of movies, you know, which, uh, m- most of them on the, on our little TV, but occasionally in the big movies under the stars mega projection screen. And, uh, Zootopia is a pretty goddamn good little movie. And I have to say, part of me at the end of it, I'm like, ah, oh, man, they really got to do that. Like, where's that Zootopia comic? You know, because it's all perfectly yeah, I love Zootopia. I saw Zootopia on Netflix. I thought it was really good. It is. It is a really good movie. It is a really good animated film. I We were shocked by how good it was. I mean, we kind of went into it being like, I need to watch this because it's my youngest niece's favorite movie. And I'd heard good things about it, too. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. But I was like, okay, we really got to see this because she kept dropping all kinds of references to it that we were not understanding. And then you watch it. You're like, holy shit, that's a surprisingly decent little film with a lot of thought put into it. And just just everything's done really well, you know. But I also had that thing of like, yeah, where's the Zootopia comic book that would run for, I don't know, five issues and be canceled or something like that, that some kid would go and pick up and then end up getting into comics somehow. You know, but the thing is, is why should they, they can just watch Zootopia over and over and over and over and over again on Netflix or if their parents bought them a digital copy or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. just to get, to get back to Transformers, the movie, the 30th anniversary Blu-ray, like, you know. <laughs> well, no, but let's, okay, let's think with this. Transformers More Than Meets the Eye is a comic that so many people we know think is one of the best comics that's out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the one that I keep telling myself I'm going to read on some, that I owe it to myself to start reading on some rainy day. Uh, but anyway, you were saying your point is, yeah, More Than Meets the Eye. Yes. Uh, oh, right. It's, 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 it does that thing that we're talking about. Like it's licensed comics that people embrace and appreciate as a comic. Mm-hmm. Like I, I like licensed comics. Do you know what I mean? Like I've read a, a shit ton of Star Trek comics and I genuinely like the Star Trek comics, but it's almost like, cause I also like Star Trek books, as you know, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of read them as fan fiction. Sure. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's it's not. I remember when I was a kid, I did read the Star Trek comics, and I'm talking at this point of the terrible, terrible Star Trek comics, the DC <laughs> ones were I was bad mouthing. But like, as some sort of like official 
continuation. Mm-hmm. Devil read the Star Wars comics as like an official continuation of the story. Like mm-hmm. it all counted in my yes, head. Yes, it all counted in my head too. And once you break that, even now I find myself like it to me it only works best as a kind of conjuration for something that is gone. You know what I mean? Like I don't think that I could see myself reading Star Trek, like IDW's Star Trek comics that are set in the current movie universe, but I can find myself being, you know, sort of lured in by reading IDW's Star Trek comics that are set with the the original series and the original cast, if you if you see what I'm saying, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because then, then there's kind of it's a little bit of the nostalgia, but it also sort of allows them the possibilities to kind of open things up a little bit, you know. However, that ends up happening to be it gives them it gives them a little bit more freedom, like you said. And it might be in that sense, it it's easier for me to view the fanfic stuff as out of canon because everything's sort of old and forgotten and and for me there's kind of the need to re-experience that stuff again but i don't really think that chris pine star trek is something where i'm like oh man gosh i really miss that you know i mean and i don't even necessarily think it's because the jj abrams trek stuff is terrible some of it's you know i mean Did, did you see star trek beyond um yes yeah i did and i thought it was good I said I I thought I talked about it here, but maybe not. I was like I I honestly can't remember. I just because I saw it on the plane back from New York. Yeah, uh, yeah. and it's it's good, but mm-hmm. it's not great. Like it, but it's good. Yeah, it's good. I I it, I've come to this like weird thing. I think I said this off recording last week about the Fantastic Beasts film as well, mm-hmm. where it's good. And it's this weird thing where I'm less critical about it mm-hmm. than I would be like about, as, as I was saying to you, about Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. Where somehow like it bypasses the the severe critical faculty that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, my my Hollywood portraiture was was taken to visit me for this this week. Um, we were talking about shit, Valiant maybe 2018. Some something that he was not really familiar with, and he's familiar with more through my writing and my talking to him about it. Uh-huh. Uh And he went, and you like it? And I was like, yeah, I like it. And he was like, you only like it because it's not a film. As soon as it's a film, you're gonna hate it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you're a snarky bastard. But there's there's an element of of truth to that. There's an element of there's things that like I had a fandom of, and then they became like omnipresent mm-hmm. and I became like hypercritical of, <laughs> you know, you... like yeah. if they do a Power Man and Iron Fist film, Oh God, I'm going to implode. <laughs> I don't, you know, it's so funny because I, um, I don't know. I just, I have those weird moments where I, I kind of feel that way and I don't really feel, I don't know. I don't know where I'm at in that regard. Like another thing that we saw on the cruise was like that most recent X-Men movie, X-Men Apocalypse or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Actually, that's true. I used to be a really big X-Men fan. I also was like, huh, that's a film. Yeah, right? You know, I was just like, I, I, I was for whatever reason, 
the X-Men movies had somehow managed to achieve their own escape velocity that when I was watching it, I was like, yeah, it's okay, you know, for... Yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of dumb and terrible, but yeah. I was not bothered at all. Right, exactly, exactly. I was like, eh, yeah, right. It's kind of like, this was, this, this was, let's not mince words, it's kind of crap, but it wasn't necessarily crap that was... Um, that at any point was somehow like, you know, poking me in my fanboy kidney being like, isn't this an atrocity? And I'm like, nah, it's just kind of like boring bullshit. But every once in a while they do stuff like weirdly enough, my, my biggest problem with it was when they, that really sort of labored Wolverine weapon X bit that popped yeah, up yeah, in the yeah. movie. Tell me whether you're like, really? Does, does he have a contractual thing that he has to show up in every fucking film? Yeah. Right. I mean, it kind of is. And part of me was like, oh, this is kind of like at first I was like, oh, this is clever. And I think if they had been uh, gracious enough to to just sort of set it up and cut away and then come back, yeah, it'd be yeah. fine. If you hadn't really featured him, then it would have yeah, been a yeah. totally different thing. Yeah. But like whatever it is, like the eight minutes of him, like jumping around growling, you're just like. I just no. wait. So, so you had no problem with the the Auschwitz scene? Yeah, I, no. I mean, that's the thing is, is I was watching that movie and I'm like, I don't know how to describe it. I think, I think for me, X Men Apocalypse might have been a lot of what you felt about Batman versus Superman: Dawn of Justice, or maybe it's very much the same thing. Where I was kind of like, this is really fucked up, but it's not boring like you know what i mean yeah, and it was I, just... I, say, more than anything, I think that's my response to suicide squad ah okay yeah, where i was like i'm not bored this this might be terrible but i'm not bored right right yeah exactly which is which is interesting because i always feel like uh whenever i think about the x-men movie franchise for whatever reason crushing boredom is the part that always remains you know, like you boil away the rest of the movie. Like I've seen, I think thanks to the miracle of having HBO, because every one of those movies ends up popping onto the HBO at some point or other. I've now seen all of them, but I saw like the first three or maybe four in the movie theaters. And each time I'm like, oh, hey, huh, yeah, huh, ooh, huh. And then like two weeks later, I'm like, oh, God, what was... What was I doing that felt like having like an anvil of boredom just like pressing on my frontal lobe? It's like, oh, right. I saw Brian Singer's X-Men movies, you know, like <laughs> I still remember that I saw the third one on a plane. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, this is the only way I'd ever watch this film. Oh, shit. Well, that's the Brett Ratner one, right? Is that the one yeah. that you're talking about? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was bad. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I'm like, I'm going to go see this in the theater because part of me was like, eh. You know, how bad can it be? Uh, what, the answer, Barry. Oh, fuck. Well, you know, yeah. What can you? What can I say? I was, I was like, uh, oh, Brad Ratner has gotten a bad rap. No, no, he has not. No, 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 no. There's Jeff. I, I've got a completely out of left field question for you. Sure. Have you watched the Gilmore Girls reboot? No, no, no. I haven't. The reason I say this is, uh, I, did you watch the original series? Were you a fan? You know, this is this is a story that I've told. It, it's one of the stories of like, you know, the path not taken. I remember watching first season of Gilmore Girls 
like during summer reruns and loving it and realizing because at the time I want to say it was on opposite Buffy. And so I was kind of like, okay, well, I got to make a choice. It's either got to be Buffy. It's got to be Gilmore Girls. And I went with Buffy and. But, but you, like you've not even revisited it on Netflix or anything? Nah, I, I should, but I just haven't. I just haven't. Because the stuff that I very much enjoyed about it, you know, is it was super, super peppy. And, um, you know, the, the dialogue was just very whip smart and very screwball fast and. But, yeah. but for whatever reason, I just couldn't quite come back to it, you know? Yeah, I know. I, I get that. The reason I'm saying that is um, there is a character in the original series who is like the uh, the editor of the Yale student newspaper. And he's very uptight and he's very, um, you know, I'm going to contribute to literature. And the, the new series happens, and it's however many years, like nine or ten years after. Right. And, you know, it's let's catch up with all the characters. And they make a point of, like, let's catch up with fucking almost everyone who's ever appeared in the fucking show. Right. Um, but they catch up with this character, Doyle, and he's become a Hollywood screenwriter. <laughs> and there becomes one point where, like, he starts name-dropping Brett Ratner and Michael Bay. And for some reason, that's the funniest thing to me. <laughs> Well, he's basically like, like I'm not a bad person. I was at Brad Radner's the other night. <laughs> like, they know what they're doing. Do you know what I mean? Like, they're yes. they're picking these names specifically. But there's just something wonderful about the, the sort of, you know, because Brett Ragnar and Michael Bay are are really successful directors. But they're, it, the idea that that's who this character chooses to name drop yes. says a lot about his lack of success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very much. Do you know what so. I mean? Mm-hmm. But yeah, mm-hmm. just when you said Brett Ratner there, I was suddenly like, oh, oh, that's right. <laughs> Brett Ratner. Well, so so this is the kind of thing, like part of me is kind of, um, uh, to, to, to bring it all back, there was a point where I mentioned that I'd been playing a lot of Stardew Valley. Uh, this was like, I think, God, I don't know if it was like, it was around the t- it was around the podcast where I talked about selling my comic book collection. And bless his heart, Abe, like in the comics thread, comments thread, put like more Stardew Valley, and I was like, oh shit, like I sh- really should talk about Stardew Valley. More. What got me thinking about it was at a certain point while playing the game, I was like, they should really do a comic of this, you know, which sounds potentially really dumb because Stardew Valley is a is a game is a farming game, but it's but there's lots of characters and there's there's like the guy put a lot of thought into I don't know about a lot of thought. He put a lot of stuff into the backstory. <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff going on, but there's also a lot of characters and if you go on Tumblr um there's just there's so many people have fan art of their favorite ships and I'm just like this would be really fun if you could pull it off cuz there's enough material there that it would be kind of fun to have. You could have lots of characters with the subplots and people who are fans would be kind of big into it. And it would also have that thing of, you know, I'm like, Hannah Blumenreich is gotta be, you know, it's like while I'm waiting for her next, like Spider-Man comic, I'm like, yeah, have her do it. Or, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's funny. It's like, I find myself on the one hand being, get the behind me licensed comics. You serve no point. Unless it's of the thing that I want that I can't get enough of, you know? 
or... But at the same time, is that not what we should be having the licensed comics for? I think so. Do you know what I mean? Like, don't have licensed comics for for the things where we get stories elsewhere. One of the things, you talked about Transformers being like a gateway drug. Yeah. Transformers, I remember loving the Transformers comic when I was a kid mm -hmm. because it was the stories. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, sure, there was the cartoon, but I, mm -hmm. I don't... I mean, maybe the cartoon was on in the UK. I, I want to say it was like on for summer or something. Right. But um, but the, the comics where you got the story, right? Like the comic was the story of the toys, and mm -hmm. you you know you bought the toys or you didn't. But the comic was the story, right? And and that's different from you know if you're doing a, a licensed comic for for a movie or a TV show mm -hmm. or or. Anything where there's an existing narrative. Right. Because then you have the, the Badassar Galactica problem or the Star Trek problem where you have to fit it in mm -hmm. to that narrative. Right, right, but exactly. If, you doing, if you're doing Stardew Valley, mm -hmm. then then there's you are you get to be the plot. Right. Right. You get you know? to yeah, you get to actually tease out the plot where you know, there's <sighs> Or variations on the plot in a, in a way that you can't, you only have the singular experience in the game. And I actually felt that I remember being so frustrated because Metal Gear Solid is one of my favorite video game franchises. And when IDW was doing the comic, I'm like, oh, this is a brilliant idea. And of course, it's Ashley Wood essentially redrawing the story from the game. And I'm like, this is the worst idea ever. Because, you know, I, everyone was like, oh, this is great. I get to see what Ashley Wood is going to, ooh, look at his take on Revolver Ocelot. And, of course, I'm like, ah, you've got a ga video game franchise where there's a character called Revolver Ocelot. Think of where you can go with all those, you know, what new territory you can you can stake out, you know. Similarly, I, I remember playing, like, Resident Evil 4 and which was the first Resident Evil game that I played. And its backstory is insane. And the great part is they don't even really tell you the backstory. They just keep on bringing in more and more characters who have appeared previously in the franchise. And they're like, you, I never would have guessed. And it's great because it kind of is that thing of like, oh, I want to know everything about these characters as long as I don't actually have to play any of the earlier video games, you know? And yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. It's like I find myself thinking that, like, part of me is like, God, maybe I should pick up some more of these video game comics that are out. But I just, but at the same time, maybe part of it's because it's never been a franchise I was interested in. I never picked up, say, the innumerable Street Fighter comics, most of which were by Udon, or like some of the video game comics that come out from. For myself, I'm like, I just don't need to read an Angry Birds comic or plant, Plants vs. Zombies. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just kind of like, I don't need to read Pac-Man. And I know that people will, you know, there, I'm sure there's people who love the Super Mario stuff way back mm -hmm. when. But I'm kind of like, I don't know. There's like a, there's a video game I, I, realm. I, I, does does Dark Horse not do a lot of video games? Am I? No, no, no. That's not... in fact, I almost name dropped them as like, I should pick, I was going to say I should pick up some of the Dark Horse video game comics, but then I had that moment of like, oh shit, what do they do besides The Last of Us and Plants vs. Zombies and 
they do Mass Effect and they do are they not doing Worlds of Tanks? Is that not the 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 thing that oh I, yeah the Garth Ennis is doing or something? the Garth Ennis thing, which is like the funniest the the funniest. Uh, yeah, it sounds like a punchline of a joke. Yeah, it does. Although. Uh, which is, it's funny that a, a, that Garth Ennis is still doing video game comic tie-ins. You know what I mean? Like, do you remember back in his early DC days, he did like some sort of uh video game tie-in? I mean, it wasn't quite no. like Smash TV. It was, it was, it was some, it was like characters who really jumped around and like, yeah, chainsawed each other's heads off. Or it was like, uh, God, what is, what was it? It was, it was like, it felt like a Smash TV, except it wasn't, um, comic tie-in, let me see here. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm also doing Garth Ennis video game. Yeah, it's, uh, everyone's gonna just mention those War Tanks ones, but he, he did Cause, one cause there's a lot of them. Yes, right, exactly, exactly. Oh, oh, here we go, I think it's, um, it, unfortunately it's on a list. Oh, is it loaded? Is that what it was? The video game tie-in for lo yeah, loaded, loaded video game. Let's see, is that an actual thing? A science fiction themed top-down shoot 'em up video game developed by Gremlin Interactive and published by Interplay. Yeah, this is it. Yeah, exactly. And it it looks like maybe they scored <laughs> yeah, Simon. Exactly. This is it. Yeah, that's the one. Because it looks like. Um, it looks like they got Simon Bisley to like do the cover art or something for it. Here, let me see if I can send this to you. I don't. I don't want to see this. You're like I'm like. Yeah, that's great. I've, I've just looked it up. Yeah, yeah. So you see what I'm talking like about, right? Yeah, like '95. I'm like, huh? And it's doing that, huh? Okay. Well, there you go. So, go for it. Well, yeah. There you go. Mm -hmm. It was only ten pages long. Yeah. Yeah, so the characters were created and designed uh, with contributions from Garth Ennis. Oh, see, there you go. Well, he actually uh, he actually contributed to more. Of yeah, it than, yeah. Hmm. There, uh, who who knew I the comic is now considered a collector's item? Says uh, Wikipedia. Oh, really? Ah, shit. Well, I wish you I had, had it. I, I I did. I did. I don't know if I still had it when I sold it to that guy, but. Uh... But well done, sir. Well done for you. Um, yeah. How huh, <laughs> uh, uh, strange. Graham McMillan, it's been yep. uh, just about two it's hours. Yeah. I, well, I have one thing to say to you before we, do, we go, though. Okay. It is Thanksgiving weekend. Yes. And that means Black Friday sales. Yes. And I have been looking at the Midtown Comics website all weekend going, am I going to get the entire run of Micronauts New Voyages? Because it's super fucking cheap. It's 75% off for the entire run. And those were not expensive comics in the first place. Right, right. So I'm talking like I can get the entire run for like $10, Jeff. Oh, my God. Right? Wow. Um, but th this is what I wanted to ask you. You are not a print comics guy anymore. I'm kind of not. Yeah. I just, in fact... Are you, are you, like, are you checking out the digital sales? I have. Week? I did. Then, yeah. There are, wasn't... are you sad? Are you sad that you're that there aren't like print comic sales, or did you not even do that before? Did I not do print comic sales? 
Yeah, like uh, you know, for places like Midtown or or right. My High Comics or ComicShop.com, like the online sales where they're like, we have a ridiculous inventory and we're doing seventy five percent off sales. Yeah, no, I never did, and and I feel like I should because it seems to me that some of the stuff that we've talked about, like at least in the future, maybe we can coordinate so that like you know whenever we start talking about doing like a Micronauts read through or something like that, getting a bunch of hard copies cheap because there's no digital equivalent. Seems like a good idea, but no, in, in past years, it's always been like hitting the digital sales and hitting them hard. And this year I was kind of, we'll see, we'll see what Cyber Monday brings, but the week leading up to and Black Friday, I was like, that's it. Like it's kind of, it was, it was kind of anticlimactic. I say that, but of course I picked up, I picked up Betty Boop number one and I actually picked up uh, the first four issues of Red Team Double Tap Center Mass through the Dynamite well, sale. So, somebody had to. And you know what? I enjoy it. I, who knows where it'll go, but I am I actually am enjoying it more than I enjoyed the first series. I mean, the first series had its various moments, but I think for me, the parts that I, apart from the, apart from the one quote unquote Garth Ennis scene where objectionable stereotypes come in and make a series of straw man arguments to make our characters look, you know, smart and sensible and well-grounded and all that sort of stuff. Uh, apart from that scene, which was in, I think issue three and just kind of exceptionally egregious, the rest of it uh, so far has been much closer to like a, police procedural comic i guess and it's it worked it's working well i'm enjoying it like the first series you know had ennis being like i've got a story to tell and i'm gonna tell it as slowly as humanly possible and this one feels more like oh i've got an idea for a crime story and i can see where i can take this and i can bring these characters back because i have a fondness for them and uh and and it's working so far so um, it's, he's he's not a writer I have enough uh, interest or familiarity with mm-hmm. to really do this. I would love for someone to talk about Garth Ennis's career. Yeah, I'm kind of because he's got a fucking has. weird career. Does he? Do you not think? Like, I feel like he was one of the seminal voices of comics in the 1990s. Hmm. And these days, it's not incredibly surprising to see him do, like, random weird miniseries of Dynamite and World of Tanks. Yeah, well, I think... Uh... Do you know what I mean? Like, he, he feels... It, it feels like he's... Uh, bless him. He's, you know, he's doing a great job of phoning shit in and, and keeping his head above water, but... it. it do you not feel like there should be like some major work from Garth Ennis that we're not getting anymore and he's just coasting? No, see, because this is the problem. I mean, among other things, I read uh, Fury, My War Gone By, and I thought that was a pretty substantial chunk of work. Um, that was. But isn't that also like a few years old? It's maybe a year and a half old, I think. I want to say people were talking about it just last year. If not, it's maybe two years old. Um, no, I 2012. think... 2012. Really? 2012? Is that when yeah. it started? Okay, so that's uh, uh, wrapped in 2013, I guess, or... 
Let's, anyway, let's I, it's, it's okay. It's me just trying to like pretend that it was like, say it was only three years ago, Graham. No, no, but, no yeah, no, I'm, I'm super. Yeah, it looks like the collected edition came out in 2014. Yeah. Or is yeah. this the, like, who could even tell from fucking Marvel release dates? <laughs> it could mean anything. <laughs> it's true. No, but you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel, I, I don't know. I feel like he's, I feel like he's had this, just this really strange career like he, he's he's coasting and I, I don't know why it's not like I'm a massive fan of this either I just feel like he could be doing more I can't explain it you know I just think Ram that you all of it uh, he's a writer that you don't have much affection for and he's tackled uh properties that you have even less affection for you know so sure. I think that actually, no, if I, you I talk guess. to people, like his Punisher Max run, is is substantial. You know, there's the Punisher stuff no, no, that he did sure. that was kind I, of I thing, guess. but you know, it's kind of it. I for me, interestingly enough, I was reading uh, Double Tap Center Mass and being like, God, Garth Ennis is like the Alan Moore that wasn't. You know, because. Moore's a dude who, you know, had some hits within the mainstream industry, like big stuff, turned his back on it, went and did other things, like had his various sellout periods for image or whatever, but actually turned around and did more work that is highly regarded outside of that early mainstream set of success. You know what I mean? Like... And, and I feel that Ennis has, con- you know, and has done so by more or less being like, I have the freedom. I'm just going to do the stuff that I want to do. And honestly, I think that and, and, and keep the publishing rights for it, you know, for the most part. And I think as far as I can tell, Ennis owns the stuff that he's done and he does the stuff that he wants to do. What he wants to do is like battlefields and... You know, I mean, he doesn't own this stuff for Punisher, but, like, The Boys was, like, a huge, huge, long endeavor, and there's some... Yeah, it, it was, like, 75 issues or something, yeah. Right. I mean, you know, I, maybe I, like, I, kind yeah. of the crossover issues. And for me, there's some substantial stuff. I spent the first third of it being like, ah, shit, this is just a guy recycling himself. But when you get to the end, I'm like, oh, he's really genuinely taking on the themes in his work and and responding to them at a critical thematic level kind of which to me is like all the more interesting reason to to write about him but also this stuff whether it's fury uh my war gone by which ends up being a um a different bleak view on um people who make war i suppose as opposed to all of his other views which are mitigated with individual heroism and horrific situations ennis figures out ways to to keep sort of upping the ante even the, even this thing even the double tap center mass which is not um you know it's it's just it could be it could be a, an ethan hawk crime movie you know uh and yet it's still to me, it's it's eminently readable. The only parts that are really tough are when Ennis gets in there. And I'd, I haven't read like a train called Love or some of the other shit. Or yeah, or even... I, I think I think you're 
Yeah. Also, Trinkon Love is sort of fitting in with my... It just feels super strange to me that, like, Garth Ennis is doing a train called Love and, like, Red Team and World of Tanks and uh, whatever the the uh, Section 8 series is he's doing for DC. Right. Like, it just all feels like this weird, disparate, um, not-discussed body of work. Mm-hmm. And also a body of work that all feels like he can do more. I don't know, I just... There's, uh, and again, you're right. I'm, he's not a writer I'm interested in. He writes about things I'm not interested in. Mm-hmm. But I just feel that somehow he should be more present. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just, it, it's an, an, an odd thing. Well, I, I, uh, yeah. I, in all seriousness, I would genuinely love to see someone who is an Ennis fan mm-hmm. do a serious overview of his career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I would, I, I, I think that if that's not coming soon, I mean, if that isn't already existing from Secart some, some already, I feel like it will be soon. I don't know. I just think that the guy, considering we were talking about Ellis, I feel that, that Ennis has done a much better job of, um, steering through the waters and getting the sense that he really he's writing about the stuff that he's committed to even if that is fucking world of tanks or even if it is i mean (laughs) six pack and dog welder looked like a really tired critique of superheroes but at least i feel like that is something that ennis is really into you know what i mean like yeah i yeah i don't know it's just the whole I, I I don't know why I expect more from him. I genuinely don't, but I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- I think that for what he does, he does it very... He reminds me in some ways of the stuff that Ed Brubaker does. And this sort of goes back to something that I think actually Abe was talking about on his Tumblr, where he, he was saying, like, kind of talking about how the image guys, like, had this tendency to kind of they were all kind of doing like ongoing series as opposed to like do a thing, then do a new thing, then do a new thing. Like just keep making new things, I guess. And he was talking about how the fact that more never really sat still and went from series to series. And like, by the time he finally does sort of get the bug and start digging into league of extraordinary gentlemen, that it's kind of, it's kind of tedious, like the excitement of making new stuff and going new places and, and having all the excitements for the number one. So just every year do a new thing with a new number one. That's a new idea and a new, you know, and, and in that sense, Ennis is reminds me of Ed Brubaker and what Brubaker is doing, which is kind of Brubaker wants to build a shelf of his stuff. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I think I sometimes feel like Ennis and Brubaker both looked at guys like uh, Ross McDonald or, you know, John D. McDonald or, you know, like those guys who like wrote 30 novels in their in their day. And those novels were all genre works, but they were all well-regarded and they were all of a type. And if you like that writer, you had the satisfaction of like finishing up one book and picking up another book, you know, by Ed McBain, you know, and being like, yeah, yeah. 
and I know what I'm going to get and I know what I'm going to like, but I also don't have to be like, I mean, Ed McBain is, may not be the best choice considering he had like 37, whatever the precinct number is, 57th precinct novels, you know, but, you know, but there are those guys who, you know, Donald Westlake's another one. And I feel like I feel like those are the lights that they're steering by, you know. I, I don't know. It would be interesting. There might have been a point where I think Ennis might have been like, oh, here's where I, you know, like, I just, I don't necessarily know if he necessarily ever wanted to reshape the zeitgeist. I think, you know, he he did Preacher. He sort of rode that horse as long as it could go. And I've always been kind of impressed the fact that he didn't turn around and be like, okay, here's my next series for Vertigo, you know? Like, he's kind of got his, you know, where he wanted to go, I mean, you know, apart from, like, The Boys, which seemed like that one kind of semi-concession to doing something like that. And rapidly, I think he found that he, even that no longer really had a place in at DC, you know, at that particular time, you know, and it was just better for him to take it somewhere else. So I don't know. I, I'm, I, I know you're, I know exactly what you're saying. I find it more interesting to have that conversation about Ellis in a way, in part because for whatever reason, my Twitter timelines filled with people talking about how important, um, trans metropolitan was into getting them interested in writing journalism or something like that. Like I have no idea who the hell's been tweeting or retweeting this, but finding myself being like, Oh yeah, Ellis was the guy who really seemed like he was going to, you know, sort of grab the brass ring like more than once, you know, because really, yeah, well, I think because, because I fell for the Ellis, um, Smoke and Mirrors Act, which is Ellis is always like, here I am researching stuff on the internet. And he comes up with like 9 million things that he's pulled from the internet, you know, or 9 million new ideas or 9 million berserk things. He just always, then they always end up getting sutured into the same story, you know, for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like, I I think I, I, for some reason think that Ellis I'm trying to think how to say this because I enjoy Ellis's work infinitely more than I enjoy Ennis's work. Uh-huh. But I think Ellis's work reveals itself to be formulaic far quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I never, uh, not only did I not expect more from him, but also I think that he is continuing to make the same noises as if he's trying. Mm-hmm. And I think that Ennis has just withdrawn from that entirely. A- Ennis is withdrawn from trying. Yeah. Yeah. You don't feel like Ellis. Is, I feel like Ellis is withdrawn from trying. He just is well aware how important it is to keep making the noises. Uh, no, I think Ennis, uh, Ellis, Warren Ellis is, <laughs> is trying, but he's trying, um, but his trying looks very similar all the time. Put it mm. that way. Like I think I I think that something like um, trees or injection mm-hmm. shows that he's still that he's not just 
repeat, he's not only repeating himself. Mm-hmm. Or even Supreme Blue Rose. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and I, uh, and I think that he, I don't know. I, I don't, I would not say that he's given up trying. And I also, when I say given up trying for Ennis, I also mean that I feel like he's totally disengaged with everything other than writing the comics. And in that respect, that might be the way to win. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, do the job and keep yourself out of it on every other aspect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because you get to do the job, you get to say what you want to say, your fans get to read it, and you don't have to deal with all the bullshit. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I have little doubt that Garth Ennis is happier than Warren Ellis. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think that's, I think that's probably very, very true. And like I said, again, for myself, I find that he's doing stuff that is in many ways, uh, mostly tighter than what he was doing previously, which I think we talked about a little bit during that preacher roundtable where I was kind of like, uh, you know, um, I, I think that. So, but I don't know. I mean, I think the same case can be made for, for Ellis, you know, I I just feel like there's been just way too many times with Ellis. Like we were talking about Karnak at the beginning of this very episode and the first issue of Karnak, even as it impressed me, it also still very much felt like it's. Oh, Warren Ellis comic. Yeah, Yeah. It felt like a Warren Ellis comic. And there were moments where I was like, Oh, Ellis is, and I guess that's a really good example for me. First issue is Ellis where I feel like Ellis is trying by the fourth issue. Ellis is not trying, you know, and I just kind of, no, no, I I, I, I completely agree. But I also like, I think that there are other comics where Ellis does try. Like I genuinely think he's trying all the way it. through because I kind of feel yeah. like he can make it for about three issues and then it just no. Like I I, th- I think that Injection is him much more on than he's been in years. Uh huh. I think Trees is much more interesting. I think Supreme Blue Rose was really interesting. I like his Bond even. See, whereas his Bond was, I think I read the first arc of that or five or six issues, whatever it was, and. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It was, it, 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 it was, it was fine. <laughs> I really, I thought, I was like, yeah, here's Ellis doing an Ellis take on Bond and figuring out a way to make it work for him. But I was also kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, I'm like, there was still a fight scene where it's like suddenly we're getting an x-ray to somebody's internal damages, which was pretty awesome when it happened to Desolation Jones, like, you know, a decade and a half ago, but for myself, I'm just, I don't know. It's, it's funny. I, I don't mean to, it's, it, it's, it, no, it's, it's funny as well. Cause part of me is like, yeah, but has Ennis really done any formalistic tricks? Like, I feel like you're arguing that Ellis isn't trying because he has not been innovating, but I kind of feel that Ellis hasn't, re- uh, Ennis hasn't really innovated either. Oh, I it's agree. Just, his obsessions yeah. are much closer to your interests and that he keeps exploring them in a way that you find interesting. I think right. ultimately what this comes down to is both of us are pulling for our own guy, even though hilariously Warren Ellis isn't really my own guy. Right. Uh, right. Because 
their obsessive needs to redo their own material mm-hmm. is more acceptable to our own interests. I guess that could be it. Like I, 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 yeah. I can't. Like I just can't understand the idea that to you, Ennis is trying and Ellis isn't. When to my eyes, they are both guilty of a similar level of repetition. I guess they both are absolutely, and I'm willing to. I actually think that they're both have. Uh, they're they're both working from similar obsessions. Like I don't even a I don't think that you know there's anything wrong with sort of mining the same material as long as you figure out various ways to do it, or because it's an actual obsession or thematic blah 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 that means a lot to you. But also I think that there's a a lot to be said. Like Ennis is for a while there, like with Karnak number one, I'm like Ennis is doing. And I felt this with the first issue of Trees or is like, oh, here's Ennis doing something and it's a more stripped down, cleaner version of it. You know, it, com- talking about comic book writers in comparison to comic book artists, I feel sometimes can be helpful for me. Because I feel like, you know, you look at an artist like, let's say, Joe Kubert, and you can always recognize a Kubert drawing for what it is. But there are artists who as they continue to work they they the their their work um changes you know so like a lot of cartoonists the things that many times i feel like we don't um fans don't like an artist's work as he gets older because he refines out of his process the things that they found the most appealing you know, and so you'll find an artist who's like starts moving in the direction of less is more and figuring out how much information they can communicate um, with the line. And one of the thing that I, sure. I really want to say with both Ellis and Ennis is I feel that both of them have changed over the course of 20 years and have changed in the way that you would want craftsmen to change in that they are better at doing the type of things that they want to do and arguably cleaner. I just feel that, and this again could be a mistake is that I haven't followed Ellis enough. And what I feel is there's enough storylines where there's huge gaps, you know, in between, uh, issues, um, that there are stories where the characters suddenly sort of shift and become cranky Ellis stand-ins, even if they didn't start necessarily as cranky Ellis stand-ins, you know, and or stories that just never got finished that we may never see finished. And for the most part, I feel like Ennis sits there and he chugs away at it and he puts, you know, his stories come out, they come out monthly, they get done, they get collected you know, a few months go by, then you hear that he's doing another series, you know, and then it comes out. What I think would be interesting, actually, as long as we're talking about Ellis and Ennis, is talking about, you know, they tried to get crowdfunding together for Ennis to direct a movie, and I guess that happened? I think they made their their thing? I don't know where any of that went, if it did. Did it not? Do you know what I'm talking about? Did it not get I have, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, uh, Avatar had like this, there was the, um, 
his military zombie series for Avatar, whatever the hell. ERF is that is it? Was it called no, ERF? No, book. I don't think so. No, no, okay, it's a kids book. I literally was looking it up by Garth Ennis and Kickstarter. Ah, uh, I don't, I don't know if it was a Kickstarter or was it one of those. Also, did, weird... did, I wonder if that ever came out. ERF, his kids comic, which apparently was crowdfunded four years ago. Oh my god! Well, was it? This is interesting. You'll have to. Uh... <laughs> I, I, I can't. I can't see that it ever happened. Uh, blah blah blah. No, I th- I want to say that the fundraising was directly through Comic Calvacade. No, it wasn't the cross thing. It was the other thing. God damn it! Aren't they That's doing a movie. Yeah, it was. It was this movie. It was the. It was the you know the zombies in Afghanistan comic stitched, stitched, stitched. That's it. Yeah, exactly. He wrote a screenplay in 2011, according to IMDb. Uh-huh. No, he apparently directed a short in 2011 called Stitched. Right. Right. There's the Stitch trailer, and then, yeah, he was going to do – they were going to raise the money and, and have him direct a, direct that. And I was kind of well, like – Well, it hasn't happened. Hmm. Well, it never a, happened. It's a shame. I'd be curious to see if that – also, you know what I mean? Like, maybe that's that other thing. Maybe maybe Ennis did have that whole, like, again, wouldn't it be wonderful to find out later? It'd just be so refreshing to hear about. I sort of want to read tell-alls about these guys' lives, even though they're relatively, even though having just finished that music biography of The Replacements suggests that that's the worst idea possible. But I'm always kind of like, why don't our comic creators find Jesus? Like most of them just go crazy, but you know what I mean? Like they never go through those really <laughs> un those great epic sweeps of But is the answer is the answer not that they don't become rich enough? They kind of don't become rich enough. I think that I think that's exactly the answer. They just never get rich enough to just be able to totally lose their fucking minds. Yeah, they, they never have that. enough money to take a break to have the moment, like to have that experience where they can just lose it. Yeah, yeah, kind of seems like it. I mean, they just you just get the cartoonists like you know Sim and Ditko or whatever who just keep grinding away while listening to talk radio until their brain snaps. So, kind of a shame. But yeah, the number of comic book writers that have lost it are really terribly few, and it's a it's a shame because you. You'd want more of that, you know? No, no, really. Think about what you're saying here, Jeff. The number of comic book writers who have lost it are really few, and it's a shame. Is it a shame? (laughs) Yeah! I think, because I think there's the right conditions in which to lose it. You know what I mean? Like, when you get successful and rich enough that you can actually ponder the meaning of life and then freak the fuck out when you do, I think there's something to that. I think, I honestly think that Everyone, it shouldn't just be rock stars and CEOs that get to have their. Everyone should have a chance to lose their shit. Absolutely, That's Jeff absolutely. That is that is it. It's true. If I was elected president, all of you would have enough money that you could spend a year doing cocaine and hookers in the Chelsea Hotel. Of course, Chelsea doesn't exist anymore. But you know the the Bohemian. You would hotel have enough of your money choice. to recreate the Chelsea. Exactly. Do it. Recreate the Chelsea, 
spend a year with hookers and blow and then lose your mind, find Jesus, go to a monastery, come out with a new name, tell everybody about the importance of transcendental meditation and a diet that consists entirely of enemas and oranges. And then four years later, realize you've been a complete cock, clean up your act, you know, and then try and go back on the comeback trail. Like, Everyone needs that arc in it's their life. American dream. No, they don't, Jeff. Oh. I think what you're saying is you want that arc in your life. Oh, so badly, Graham. Come on. I mean, clearly. But I want you to have it, too. That's what I'm saying. I'm very – I'm a very open-minded, I, I, rational I'm person. I'm sorry. I do not want that arc in my life. <laughs> oh, Graham. Uh, I'll take money, but I don't want to have the breakdown. <laughs> But then what good is the money? Ah, I don't know. All right. <laughs> Fine. I, I honestly feel like we're, we're, we're coming back to the part where I was like, I don't feel good spending $200 on myself. And you're like, I spent four times that amount on myself. Exactly. I feel like we're right back there. Exactly. Listeners, what you don't know, as Graham's fond of saying, is I got Graham a delicious advent calendar and I'm very excited <laughs> That's about it. True. Jeff sent me for the second year in a row. That's an right. Advent calendar, yep. Which is just the nicest thing in the world. Uh, I, I, as you people are listening to this, if you listen to it on the day it's released, December is just days away. That's right. Um, I, I'm sure I've talked about this in the past. I love the holiday season <laughs> and I love advent calendars unreasonably. Uh, but what, what Jeff doesn't know even is that that advent calendar arrived maybe definitely less than a day after I was talking to my wife about, do we have an advent calendar this year? We should really get an advent calendar. <laughs> oh, and thank God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so glad because I actually had that year. Because I, I don't know, for whatever reason, because, I think because your joy of the holidays, you're, like the advent calendar is the only area where I guess our, like our interests overlap, but our style of interests are different, I guess, if you understand what I'm saying. So the idea that you have an advent calendar where it's like, it's an actual, you have an actual thing and you look forward to opening it each day and getting a new little present. I'm like, I'm so down with that. Like, I want to support that because I'm like, that's such a great in fact, I really had that thing of like, oh, my God, advent calendars. Are, why don't I have an advent calendar? And part of it is I just they're can't so find good. one. They're so I know, but there's just I can't find one. Last year, we had an advent calendar that was was pretty wonderful. Um, and we unfortunately <laughs> it's so funny. I was asking about it today at the Trader Joe's and they're like, oh, yeah, that advent calendar. Yeah, we had got that this year and it went in like four days. I was like, what? So. Um, but I just, I mean, cause I always go onto Amazon and I'm like, oh, there's going to be all these awesome advent calendar. Like I came so close to getting you like a Lego advent calendar, but, but I don't really, th I was like, I don't know if, if Graham would like that and it would like the knickknacks. Like, yeah, okay, th this, safe this is what Jeff got me, people. <laughs> Jeff got me a chocolate advent calendar, uh, from Godiva chocolates, <laughs> which came <laughs> Jeff, I think I said this to you in an email, and I might not have. Came in a, a large box, like a really su surprisingly large box for the size of the advent calendar, wow. uh, that had Godiva 
Brandon all over it. Okay? So Kate is losing her shit. She's like, you've been sent good time with chocolates. And I was like, what? And she's like, I think someone from your work is sending you good time with chocolates. <laughs> Where did this come from as well? Did I tell you about getting Hellboy wine? No. No, but I'm not surprised. I got, I got Hellboy wine. Oh my goodness. Uh, from Dark Horse. Because a local Oregon winery mm-hmm. is like Hellboy wine. That's too funny. And so I get a box of wine delivered one day. <laughs> I get this like, why is someone send you wine? And I'm like, oh, I guess it's because it's Hellboy wine. And she goes, fuck this getting books in the mail shit. More people should send you wine. <laughs> So the guy, the massive guy, a box like tape box arrives, and she's like, "If you're getting sent wine and chocolates, I am changing my mind about how much mail you get." Yeah. Good. Oh my god, that is so funny. Yeah, it is true. I also do have that moment of like, "Oh right, Graham McMillan gets so much stuff in the mail, and yet here I am sending him a little presents to." Oh well, well that's fine. Anyway. I'm glad to hear that you, you like it and enjoy it. But it is funny because it is that part of the the discussion is part of me is that's right. Graham would not rebuild the Chelsea Hotel and spend a year doing um drowning in hedonism and then having to have, force himself into a religious awakening, you know, all while trying to deal with the essential absurdity of life. But I, no, I would myself, I'd literally go to the quasi-religious awakening like immediately, which would be just be like, oh, I've got too much money. Well, I can't even spend. What am I doing? What is the point of it all? I would just flip right there. Man, man, I tell you, I get that, but I'm just sort of like, mm, it's maybe it's oh, no, my. Jeff, this, this is where you and I are, are like 180 degrees separate. Oh yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So, uh. Okay, you know what? We actually, that was probably our best last-minute digression ever, <laughs> right? you know? I, 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 at one point, I did look at the clock, and I was like, we were totally wrapping up half an hour ago. <laughs> we totally were. We totally but were. we're actually going to wrap up now, everyone. Hey, everyone, we're wrapping up. You ready? This is where I tell you that we have show notes on waitwhatpodcast.com. I tell you, we also have uh, waitwhatpods.tumblr.com. It's Tumblr where we post images of comics. It's very exciting. I don't know why I'm suddenly sounding like Snagglepuss. Exit. Stage Twitter. Because <laughs> I podcasts. We have a Twitter account. Uh, Jeff is on Twitter solo at LazyBastard at L-A-Y-B-S-T-I-D. I am on Twitter solo at Graham M at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. And Jeff, do you know we're a Patreon supported podcast? Why, yes, Graham. Yes, I do. And, uh, but I have to, that's what that means. You know, it's so funny because I think that, uh, I, we owe a huge debt to all of our supporters on Patreon. Um, thanks to them, uh, we actually do the Baxter Building podcast in addition to Wait What. Um, you know, they, it, it just is a lot of support that uh, really does mean a lot to us and manages to keep us um, sort of engaged and aware that there are people who appreciate what we do and therefore we should probably appreciate it as well. Uh, among those uh, people that we need to thank, uh, 
are the Kind Crew at American Ninth Art Studios, as well as Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, who, in her benevolence, allows our tiny solar system to uh, continue to exist, as well as helping out with the continuing existence of this podcast. We are grateful to you all. We're also grateful to everyone who is excited about the prospects of a Baxter building, after I teased it up earlier by telling you that, holy shit, there's some comics ahead. You guys. I got to tell you, like, the Baxter building is like, ugh. It's like the Batan death march of comic podcasting. It's like we really got to, like... Jeff, seriously, there's some, like, the wackiness that awaits us. You have no idea. There are, uh, I want to say, three or four Bill Mantlo... John Byrne, Joe Sinnott issues wow. in this next batch. Mm. There are the first two John Byrne written and drawn issues, Ooh. which come like more than a year before he actually takes over the book full time. Uh, and then there is the just wacky, weird ass Doug Munch, Bill Sienkiewicz issues. Ooh, wow. Right. You mentioned there's, those. There's some craziness ahead in the next episode of Extra Building, which is going to happen next week, listeners. Mm-hmm. Yes, so come back for that because um, because otherwise we're just going to be talking about it for to ourselves. That's right, <laughs> exactly. Nobody wants that. <laughs> we're saving that for our senior years, where we just pretend that we're doing a podcast uh, and everyone like you know indulges us. So um, exactly. everyone just pretends there's a microphone there. <laughs> hey, Jeff, yes, do you have Brent. any final words? Uh, be good to yourselves. I don't know. Were, was there something you were trying to lead me into? What's that? No, no, no. I was just, I was just asking if you had anything to say before I said bye. Oh, thank God, thank God, because no, I didn't. So <laughs> I still hope that you include that part of the podcast. I will. I think I should.